0: Testing one two three. Testing one two three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, we have with us in studio, or at least in another state, appearing on the same screen with me, the one, the only, Carrie Shirts, also known as the Backyard Professor. I'm not sure people may know you better by the Backyard Professor than Carrie Shirts.
1: Carrie, welcome on the show. Well, Thank you, RFM. I'm, I'm really happy to be here. This will be a lot of fun, I think. Well, I just want to
0: give folks a brief understanding of who you are in case they don't know. But you have been historically a monumental force in Mormon apologetics, particularly with the Book of Abraham. Now, don't shake your head at me, young man. You know what I'm saying is true. We can all see you. Okay, so anyway... <laughs> No, this is true. Um, Kerry has gone on to do a number of videos that were put up on YouTube by you about Book of Mormon and Book of Abraham apologetics under the title, The Backyard Professor. And what has happened is that he was also one of those who was instrumental, actually one of the founders of the Foundation for Apologetic Information and Research, which is what it was originally known by, but... FAIR, the apologetic, the Mormon apologetic uh, website and information site. He was one of the founders of that, and he'll tell us about that story. And he will also tell us stories about people that he knows who are associated with FAIR and Mormon apologetics, people including Daniel C. Peterson, people including John Gee, people including Matt Roper, people including John Twetness, people including Russell McGregor, And some or all of these people you may know, but if you don't, by the end of this program, you will, through the stories that Carrie Schertz is going to tell us about those experiences. So having said, oh, and the other thing is, is that Carrie Schertz has gone from being a very ardent and passionate defender of Mormonism to becoming an atheist. That's fair to say, isn't it, Carrie?
1: Uh, Yes and no, and I will clarify that,
0: Yes. Typical atheist response. Yeah. You can't get a straight answer out of an atheist.
1: No, no, because because see, we we truly are a lost breed, and we feel bad about this. I'm serious. All atheists out there in the world feel terrible about being so lost. However, we're working on it. So you know.
0: <laughs>
1: well, <laughs> let's let's start at the beginning, shall
0: we? We won't go back to the pre mortal existence, okay? But I do want you to tell the audience a little bit about your upbringing, because I understand that you were born and raised a member of the LDS Church. Correct. Can you tell us a little bit about your youth, your um, the things that you did as a youth, and what it is that ended up leading you to your passion for apologetics?
1: Sure. I was... Uh... I, I I'm really disappointed that you didn't want me to start in the preexistence where I was such a valiant soul and a Saturday's warrior. But we can skip all that noise. That's a long story. Yeah you, long stri- yeah,
0: you weren't one of those people who kicked he uh kicked Lucifer out of heaven, were you?
1: Oh no, no, I I uh, no, I did not get along well with Lucifer. Because some people I, have that
0: in their patriarchal blessing. Really? Yes, my <sighs> patriarchal blessing says that I was. Uh, I helped to kick you out of heaven.
1: <laughs> Thank you here we are we <laughs> meet again we, we meet again. It must be destiny <laughs> I was uh i would I had a great uh, childhood nothing to complain about at all i I truly had fabulous parents. Uh, I had four brothers by the time I kind of became... Uh, old enough to ride my bike with training wheels and all my oldest brother had taken off but later on in life he kept coming back around and i got to know him really well thank the lord and so but i had a good i had a great upbringing i really did i i had uh, friends we had all the birthday parties i constantly went to church i went through primary i sang all the songs i my kindergarten was an absolute ball playing with all those toys with all my other friends who eventually I found out none of them were Mormon, but I got along with them anyway. But where was this when we were younger? It didn't matter where, uh, Idaho, In Idaho, Idaho. but none of your friends were Mormon. That seems odd, it, it was right, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, Todd Thompson and Chucky Gilmore, who was killed just before I went on my mission in a plane wreck that just absolutely wiped me out, him and Ronnie Kent, my two best friends. And that's what threw my little brother off into the deep end. And he psychologically couldn't handle it at all because we used to show him around a lot. And it was, it was difficult for me too, but uh, yeah, we, we did all the typical stuff. We played basketball and uh, it was, Oh, chess monopoly but chess came a little later Uh, i'll just tell you one quick story about chucky gilmore and i we used to have sleepovers of course we used to always sleep out in the backyard at night and look up at the stars and all that jazz had a great time learning how to ride tricycles taking swimming lessons together and just Picnicking, going to the zoo, picking crab apples and having crab apple fights and helping our moms make crab apple pie and and uh, we helped make homemade ice cream and uh, the difference between Chucky and I is he was polite and I wasn't uh, when he would come over to my house and sleep over in the morning, you know, we had breakfast, we had the breakfast cereals, Captain Crunch and Cheerios and all that jazz and he would have one bowl. When I was over to his house, I would never stop eating. There was one time, no kidding, man, one time his beloved mother actually came up to the table after I poured the third bowl and started putting the cereal away. I, I didn't realize it was rude, but, you know, I'm I, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> we had a great time. But, uh, was there an incident what, in the backyard when you were camping out?
0: What's that? Was there an incident in the backyard when you were camping out one night?
1: Yeah, we fell asleep.
0: Oh, That's what you were leading up to. That's what that whole story was about. You're no, in the backyard no. camping out, <laughs> looking up at the stars, and the, oh, well, the day you fell asleep?
1: Yeah, well, well, we would always speculate about the life out there in the universe, of course. And we had it all figured out by age six. And uh, one day I had slept over to his place. We were in the basement and We woke up in the morning, had our breakfast. We spent the entire day in his basement playing Monopoly. And we must have went around that board 500 times. And by the end of the game, that little schmuck beat me. (laughs) He had more money than I did. We actually wrote and drew our own money because we ran out of the Monopoly money because we played it for so cotton-picking long. And so, but when I, when I went home and my mom had called and his mom had said, yeah, yeah, the boys are down in the bay. Everything's fine. I'll take care of them. Uh, when I went home that night, I I realized, man, because when I came up out of the basement, it was already dark. The sun had set. Now this was in June. This was when the days were long, and we were just having such a good time. And yet, uh, in the afternoon, we got kind of, you know, what are we doing this for? You go well, one more time around the board. Okay, one more time around. Well, no, no, no. I can beat you. I can beat you. I, I think I can. So anyway, I vowed. I was eleven years old. I don't know why I remember this silly detail. I vowed. From that point on, never to be bored again. Was that boring for you? It was after noon to 10.
0: (laughs) So this was a very boring experience that you inflicted upon yourself. We
1: played that. I mean, we were together as friends and having a good time enjoying each other. But, I mean, we were both... Sick of the game, but neither one of us wanted to stop because we wanted to win so bad that we kept rolling the ice and putting our piece around the you know we we even added extra pieces so that we were moving uh I had five of the pieces, the little race car and the cannon and whatever, and he had the other five, and we had colored them with with some kind of a color marker or something. I can't remember how we marked them off, but yeah, we were we, we realized both that we wasted our entire day. I mean, we could have been outside doing something more fun than playing this stupid game going around in circles. And, you know, from that day, I have never had a boring day. I conquered boredom that day. I'm serious. I decided, you know what, I'm going to be happy. And I'm never going to be bored again. And it dawned on me: people who were bored are themselves boring. So, at 11 years old, I was very blessed for whatever reason that I conquered boredom. Isn't that fun? So, how did that <laughs> manifest
0: itself in your life?
1: Oh, I don't know. It's been too boring. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I have always uh, been active in in some way or another, physically spiritually mentally psychologically here's the reason i ended up with the moniker the uh the backyard professor now when when this first came out of course uh there were a lot of people who really ridiculed me because they said, Oh, you're a phony. You're cheating. You're not a backyard. You're not a professor. You don't have a PhD or a master's. And they were totally right. I didn't, but I wasn't trying to present an image of being a university PhD wielding professor. What happened was during all of our camp outs, our travels around my wife and I in the car or in the camper or whatever, I always took several of my books with me so that I could research because I cross-reference all my books together. I make my own indexes in my own books because indexes in books just suck. Oh, can I say that word online? Yeah, you can On say the, that oh, word. Oh, okay. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, no bleeping yet. <laughs> so, so what I do it. I, I took my books and after we did fishing and hiking and all that, Jazz, you know, my wife wanted to take a nap or relax or whatever. I would pull my books out and start studying and researching and cross-referencing. Now these so are what she, kind of books? Oh, I had well, they were religious books mostly. Mormon books? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was I was heavily into uh oh my gosh. Tell us. I, I it well, it's almost embarrassing, but I just basically worshipped and farms. And I had all their stuff and I read all their stuff truly dozens of times. I just about had nibbly memory. It was ridiculous. I was way overboard, but I was cross-referencing everything so that I could answer everybody's objection as a, a good apologist. right? Can we back up for just a second, Gary? Oh, sure, sure.
0: We've skipped over a lot of stuff, and that's okay by me. I, well, we Three we'll hours back. for the interview, and I know you have so much to talk about. But I do want to ask you, what was the motivating force? I mean, I was an apologist, too, back in the 1980s, which was my 20s. Uh-huh. Okay, And I know about the farms and their reprints and all the papers they put out for the cost of basically just copying. They were made to be expensive. And John Welch did a great job of creating farms as a clearinghouse.
1: Oh, he and- did. Yeah
0: for information where scholars and uh, those interested in scholarship could find out and exchange information and learn about what other people had to say. I probably bought 75% of what they had advertised. The other 25% may not have interested me, but I got them and I would three-hole punch them and I would put them in these big binders as far as all (laughs) these papers. And (laughs) I would read through them and I'd mark them up. But I think that you were more involved in it even than I was, because tell us about what you told me about before and what you were just getting into is about your methods of cross-referencing.
1: Oh, sure. Well, um, real quick with this backyard professor, my wife said, man, it's like you're a backyard professor. And I, I don't know why, but the name stuck. I said, Oh, well, I mean, I, uh, other people. She began telling other people, "Yeah, I married a backyard professor," you know, and so that's where the handle stuck. So it's not like I was trying to lie about credentials. Yes, I've got a bachelor's degree in history. Big whoop. That was back in nineteen ninety four. Holy nightmare. That's old, old stuff. So what I found, um, I, I needed. A way to, because I was writing so many letters before the internet, back and forth with with various ministers in town, and I had a a list of people, friends, family, that I was keeping track of through letters. Gary, Gary, don't skip over that. Tell us about the letters
0: you're writing to ministers in your town. Oh, yeah, yeah. Why are you uh, writing to ministers in your town? You're a good Mormon boy. How old are you at this time that you're writing letters to ministers? Well, I've,
1: I've skipped a boatload of my life, haven't I? I? I'm up into my 20s now. So, boy, I'm missing all the good stuff when I was a cantankerous youth, right? Uh, yeah. So, um, I basically, it was my post-mission time just before the Internet. And I came home, I went to Missouri St. Louis mission. See, I did everything that a a typical good Mormon does. I mean, I was raised up through the priesthood, deacon, teacher, priest. I was, I always prepared the sacrament. I always passed the sacrament. I always blessed the sacrament. I never missed anything. Um, And, and then of course I, memorized all the missionary discussions before I even got to the MTC. man. It's a good, would thing, take... you got, it's a good thing you got called English speaking. Oh boy. I'll tell you what. I'd have, I, although I really wanted to go to the German stuff, but I wish I'd have went to Germany, but it's okay. Missouri was fine except for the weather. And that happened every day, unfortunately. So, so you memorized all the discussions, by the way, for
0: those of us who aren't familiar with ancient history in Mormonism back in the day, when you went on your mission and when I went on my mission, we actually had to memorize word for word all yeah. of the missionary discussion so we could present it in a way that was approved
1: of by the church. Yeah. And use the flip chart. Now I'm giving my age away. You had to memorize when to flip the next pic- picture. So, yeah, I, I had all those memorized. Then I went on my mission. What of for fl- you on your mission? uh 79 to 81 or actually technically yeah the very end of 70 80 to 82 79 to 81 when were you in the mtc not not that era uh 79 when dude i'm i'm 60 years old you expect me to remember that Far
0: back yes i do because i was there from november of seventy nine to
1: January of eighty. Oh my gosh! Were we, we there at the same time? We very well might have been. I am not kidding, yeah. Because see, I graduated in high school in seventy nine in June, and uh, yeah, I was there. By golly, it might have been. I got my mission call. I, I. It's
0: not that important, so we don't have to.
1: It is too. Dude, this is critical we have to go back to this no i'm kidding so anyway yeah and and i had a good two-year mission i worked hard and read a lot and the only mission rule i really truly broke i was always way up before uh the time i, I wasn't one of those sleep in i was i was Didn't anxious sleep until 6 30 like everybody else oh heavens no i was up, get up early no i was up five o'clock so i could do some studying
0: yeah Okay, but that's not the only mission rule you broke, is it?
1: Yeah, that's the only one.
0: No, hang on. There are certain things in your mission and in my mission that we are allowed to read.
1: Yes. Yeah. Talmage, McConkie. Yes. Well, not McConkie so much. Talmage, Jesus the Christ, and Articles of Faith. Right. I had I had pocket editions of them, and I read each one of them about eight times. LeGrand Richards, Marvelous Work on the Wonder. I read through that about 20 times. I basically memorized that book and uh, so on and so forth. But I had a real excited uh, ward mission leader in my very first area, Jefferson City, Missouri, who was uh, an aspiring scholar. And so he would take me over to the little bookcase that they had in their small ward meeting. There was probably... 60 members in that ward and typical about 30 of them when we ever showed up. So, but he would show me the new books and stuff. And, uh, that's where I found Nibley's, uh, since uh, No, I found that one later in my oh. mission. That's the one that changed me though, but I found his myth makers, the myth makers. Right. And I began reading through that. Now, of course, uh, I wasn't familiar with all of the Anna mormon literature and all, and his myth makers is him mocking and making fun of all the contradictions with the Anna mormons which I did not fathom much, but it was a fun book to read because it, you know, strengthened my faith and yada, 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 but I didn't grasp. It, so.
0: Right, but you're talking about the Hurlbut affidavits that were gathered early
1: on in Mormon history. Correct. Yeah. And I I was not aware of any of that in church history because, of course, they didn't teach us that in Sunday school and (laughs) seminary.
0: I wasn't either when I read it and I got it as a um, it was an out of print, but I got it at a church bookstore somehow and paid the price for it because it was out of print. And I read through it. And so much of what I learned early on from Nibley and others are responses to arguments that I'm not even aware what the arguments are.
1: Yes. Isn't that, isn't that fascinating? That was basically me too. Yeah. 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 And I suspect it's a lot of people. So but it, as I went through my mission, probably a year in, uh, I was up there in Peoria, Illinois. That was part of our missionary just below Nauvoo. I actually got to spend a couple of weeks in Nauvoo. Uh, not very long, not near long enough, but, uh, It was there that we had uh, one of the elders quorum who was a medical doctor who had more money than he knew what to do with. And his library was absolutely drop dead, knockout, mouthwatering, sumptuous, gorgeous. I had to have it. And when we got to know each other, he was really helping us. He would bring friends over to his house and have us teach them. And for whatever reason, he realized uh, that my desire and enthusiasm to study uh, was way beyond anything he had ever said, is how he told it to me. So he pulled out Nibley since Kimura and he said, Just, he said, I know you're not supposed to read this. He goes, I'm well aware of that. I said, Man, I've already read McConkie's three doctrinal commentaries on the New Testament, I've already started his uh Jesus series, uh, I've been reading church books like crazy because I was waking up a couple of hours extra early in the morning while my companions slept in and so on and so forth. So I read while I tracked it. It was, I'll bet my companions hated me. It was silly. I was so absorbed in learning. It was stupid. I didn't even see the countryside. It was too humid anyway in Missouri. Ooh, hottest day, 118 degrees, 89% humidity coldest day with the wind chill was 100 degrees below zero Were you out attracting in that i actually told my companion and, and our heater in our apartment went out and we had just this real little one burner stove that was next to the only outside window there was an inch of frost on the inside of that window man and we were both huddled by that heater the, the because the furnace had gone out, man, and the the landowner said, "Sorry, you're out of luck. It's a good thing that's a gas stove." So we had this little campfire type thing that we were both huddled all night long. It was too cold, and I told him the next morning, I said, "Okay, get dressed. We're going tracting." And he goes, "You, you can stick it." <laughs> uh, I, and I said, "No, no, no. Listen." This will be a great missionary experience story to tell. When we go home, we conquered the elements. We went tracking in a hundred below zero. Come on, do this with me. And so I, I was a senior companion. So guess what? He did this with me. And we went right next door just as fast as we could and knocked on the lady's house, right? You see her flick this curtain to the side and we knocked again and she hurried up and opened the door, grabbed us both, pulled us in there. She said, "You get your scrawny little butts in here!" And slammed the door. And we said, "Hello, ma'am, we're missionaries." And she said, "I know who you are." She said, "This is not funny. This is not cute. You Good. do not need to be out there. I don't want to listen to a thing you have to say. You get your butts back in your apartment." <laughs> you know so much for spreading the gospel. So, but, you but got I, some, I, but you I got went tra- story. Yeah, but I went tracking in a hundred below zero weather. So there you
0: are. How valiant I was. That's a great story. And I appreciate Uh, it. Can we get back to Since Kimura*? Because I actually read this before my mission. Oh, lucky. When I was 18, I went on my mission when I was 19. Uh, Uh I had a neighbor in the neighborhood who had uh, some of these books. They were members of the church. And I got Since Kimura*. I'm pretty sure, off their bookshelf. And I read it at home as I could. And my recollection of it is, even though I wasn't really understanding a lot of what was being said, because there's so much background information that I don't have. Right. Yeah. Church and an 18 year old. But basically, (laughs) Nibley putting in a volume, the different evidences that he feels support the Book of Mormon and probably Mormonism, but probably most specifically the Book of Mormon, since it came forth from Camorra in the 20s. And I think there's talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls in there as well. Oh, there
1: is Dead Sea Scrolls, Cement, Linguistics. I mean, that book had it all. It was a missionary's dream come true, man. I read that book the day that guy gave it to me. I lied. I did break a mission rule. I did not go to sleep that night. And you're reading books that are not on the approved list. That's irrelevant. They're Mormon apologetic defender books. Dang it. Uh, Actually, my mission president got on me for that. And I got mad at him at my end interview. And I said, listen, yes, I broke the rule. And I did it. Yeah, you're right. And I, but I was not reading Sports Illustrated swimsuit editions. I was not reading the Gentile materials. I have been reading church commentaries. I have been reading materials on the doctrine you know, the typical justification. I've been reading Hugh Nibley, And he said, you broke the mission rules. You had a failed mission.
0: Wait, he said you had a failed mission. Is this at the end of your mission or something?
1: Yeah, on my going home interview man you had a failed mission yes because i deliberately broke that rule and i i'm telling you that i uh yeah how did that make you feel uh just really jolly rosy and a warm bo- burning in my bosom uh that was horrible i i couldn't believe it i said man i have busted my butt uh, I trained missionaries that you deliberately sent to me that no one else would train because you told me I could at least get them up by ten o'clock in the morning. I had an elder. I had an elder who was a car mechanic, and he felt like his mission was to fix the fleet of mission cars, and he would not track and he would not get up until ten in the morning, and he would go to bed at about nine. He did nothing.
0: Terry, and, I want to tell
1: you here's an
0: example of how fast time flies is that we've got three hours for this interview. We're already half an hour into this. No way. Way. Uh, so I'm I have a heads up so you know how fast time can fly. Can you tell us how since Kimura changed your life?
1: I haven't even said anything yet. Holy cow. I apologize for the misery with which our hearers might be going through. It's not my fault. I can't help it. I will Um, try and rule with an iron hand now. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Bishop. Since Camorra. Since Since, since Camorra was, for me, the perfect start. That is where I got the apologetic spirit. Because during the discussions from that point on on my mission, I began to slip in evidences of the Book of Mormon. I read the Book of Mormon once a month, every month on my mission. By the end of my mission, I just about had it memorized. There wasn't a scripture you couldn't mention that I knew exactly where it was. I knew where every story was. and but I was starting to slip in all these really cool little evidences. Yeah, it didn't get anybody baptized, but the members loved me because they hadn't heard of Nibley, right? Since Kamora was the, I, I would say the beginning of my, Uh, apologetic desire but what really cemented it was when I was in Nauvoo at the bookstore I found his an approach to the Book of Mormon and by the time now we were all out of area because we had a mission conference at the time and I had a five-hour trip back and it was the zone leader that was taking us home and by the time we got back to our flat five hours later I had that book read
0: Wow. Now, an approach to the Book of Mormon by Hugh Nibley is unusual in that it was actually originally a priesthood manual that was used in the church, I
1: think, in 1970 or so. No, no, 1957. Oh, that early. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And it's really too bad that the church didn't keep doing that policy of getting good product. Yeah, see, I was born in 61, so that was just a little bit before I was a twinkie in my mama's eye. Yeah, the reason so, I was
0: thinking a 1970 is because if memory serves, it was none other than Joseph Fielding Smith who wrote the introduction. Yeah,
1: yeah, it was. Yeah. Uh, it, it was amazing that he could get so far off base after reading Nibley with his ridiculous, silly, unbelievable fundamentalist mindset but you know that's neither here nor there that's that's his cross to bear but and this is a great
0: example that date of 57 is important because this is a significant difference between pre-correlated mormonism oh yeah yeah. correlated mormonism and the correlation program started in 60 1960 i think or so yeah and it took a while for it to become part and parcel and enmeshed in the church probably about 20 years actually it did. In 79 it seemed very open much more fascinating much more uh interested in finding out things and learning things and being open to new information and then shortly after that it really seems to have clamped down on that
1: well well uh Nibley in his uh, BYU commencement speech leaders versus managers was trying to tell the brethren hey guys uh, you're really doing this stupid and wrong he was talking to the church
0: well, it uh, nobody he
1: did too I don't think anybody really realized that at the time, but he was trying to tell them, look, here's the difference between leaders and managers, and you're going down the managerial role, road, and you're boring us to flipping death with all this correlation. You're making it so that we don't even ask good questions or think about anything. Uh, and I caught that when I read it. I did not. I will tell
0: you, but later I, on, I started understanding his audience
1: that was one of his critiques of Mormonism that he got away with because he was so careful not to name names, Boyd K. Packer. <coughs> sorry. Um, and so he got away with it. But yeah, so. Gary, so, will uh, you would, do this for me? And I'm sorry,
0: I don't mean to interrupt. This is nope. the iron hand. Going from since Kimor, will you follow the apologetic thread in your life?
1: Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've, I've gone through my mission, and my seminary and all that, haven't I? that's typical stuff. So sure. So I came home. What I, what I did when I read an approach to the book of Mormon on my mission, I told the Lord, please give me a chance to find everything this man has published and I will preach it to the housetops. Please give me because in his footnotes, you know, he's referencing several of his improvement era articles the Stick of Joseph, Stick of Judah, the Baptism for the Dead in Ancient Times, right? And you're looking at his footnotes, you go, Oh my gosh, look at how much this guy has written. This isn't the only two books he's written. And then the message of the Joseph Smith Papyri came to me on the mission, too. And I read through it once. And was completely flabbergasted. I said, "Oh my gosh, there's more depth to this guy than I can possibly imagine." Little did I know that was just the tip of the iceberg on the papyri, right. So
0: yeah. that was <clears> about <clears throat> seventy three, I think.
1: Yeah, I put that aside. This is revising. my
0: for getting the publication date of an approach to the Book of Mormon
1: wrong. Oh no, yeah, there you go. Yeah, it's not a big deal. It's just a mere detail, you know. You're whitewashing history. You jerk anyway (laughs) so i put that aside it was way too deep i'm 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 ai am a 20 year old missionary nobody read the message of the Joseph Smith papri so let me tell you it was
0: too deep for me when i tried to read it when i was in my 40s i think
1: yeah well it was too deep for me the first six times through but i kept wading through it getting a little bit more so but so i got home um I had a wonderful revelation of the girl I was going to marry four months later because I was so horny, or I mean uh, spiritual, that I went ahead and got married. I went and told her that the Lord has revealed to me that I am to marry you, and of course, she scoffed, and then I hung out so long that she finally had to say yes, because that was the only way to get rid of me for a couple of months while I gave her some air, right? so we ended up getting married and we were both too young we were both too immature we couldn't handle it uh, we really did not know each other uh, and we ended up being divorced about four and a half years later and i'm happy to take my share of the blame for that uh, but it was also her and that's you know i don't need to get into the gory details the thing that really Uh, hurt but has now been reconciled is she kept the children from me i tried everything i could to do to maintain the child support and uh we did not end up being friends which is too bad but now we're okay i guess we say hi to each other if and when we ever see each other but i didn't see my kids for years later on she tried to get me to uh release my legal obligation over my children and she would drop the child support and i told her to stick it and i kept paying the child support i paid every cotton picking penny and yet i still didn't get to see him i went to court i lost because i was behind on child support by ten thousand dollars i was a poor starving artist at that time long story short Me and my children are reconciled now. I get to see my grandkids. It's a great time. I'm blessed with two really fabulous children. My daughter is a a worldwide award-winning author of fantasy. She's very good. My son is a very successful construction worker. So their dad is still struggling to try to become somebody. And I'll always remain a nobody. However.
0: Hey, their dad is a backyard professor. There's only two kids in the world who can say that. Oh, Okay, uh, yeah, yeah. Don't hey, swallow my question, Carrie. You had a revelation from God to marry this woman. It yeah. blows up in four and a half years with all the pain and difficulties that you've talked about with uh, the kids and the. Oh, and the
1: bishop took her
0: side too. And all these things. So, what did you do with that? Did that even make a dent in your testimony at the time or raise a question? Why did God give me a revelation for something that turned out
1: so awful? I felt so guilty of failure that I told God I'm going to prove to the world your church is still true and that's when I started writing all the ministers in town and Karen, can you take a part. second
0: Why sure you, are you saying you felt guilty for the marriage
1: not working? Yeah, I failed it's an eternal marriage man and now I'm going through a divorce and the bishop and state president is taking her side, not mine, when I married a mama's girl. that's she was constantly with her mom. And later on we all found out why she had psychology problems. I'm not going to get into that. that's not fair to her, but it's worked out now but yeah, I was feeling tremendously guilty. Oh my gosh, I no longer fit in the church. I became inactive for quite a while, and then I decided I'm going to prove that this church is true. I've got Hugh Nibley, man. So that's when I began writing all the ministers and telling them, that, and I, I held a correspondence with people. And Can I just I make joined-
0: comment first here, Carrie? because I want to hear about this. This is very interesting to me because it sounds like this is the basis for your passion. Your longstanding passion is being an apologist, but it is not uncommon for someone to Feel they've got a revelation from God to do something it blows up and there's two things you could do you could say well thanks a lot God or that wasn't a revelation or what is much more common is yeah it was a revelation yeah God gave it to me but I did something wrong it's my fault that it didn't work out we're not going to blame God we're not going to discount the revelation it sounds like
1: that's something like what you were doing the second path yes And the guilt was tremendous. So I was going to get rid of the guilt. I was going to prove I was I was uh, worthy uh, to get my kids back. But it never did happen until after they both grew up and became legal age themselves. So all those years, I carried that kind of guilt with me.
0: Well, tell us about how it is that and the things that you did getting into the letters to expiate
1: this guilt of yours. By defending God and the church and the brethren and the scriptures. So, I mean, I have a trial of my faith. I'm going to demonstrate I'm faithful. And yeah, I, at this point in time, really, truly, I was also making up for the fact that I was not nearly as active and I wasn't, but I still struggled to go to church. And I did quit attending the temple because uh, being behind on child support is a moral issue and the woman deserves that money. And I, I explained my whole situation and how I was continuing to pay back child support, et cetera. And so I, I basically was going inactive all the while trying to remain a defender. I wanted to prove my spiritual worth What kind of
0: things did you do to prove your spiritual worth as a defender of the faith?
1: I talked with people. I bought lots of LDS books. I, I kept in track with farms. Um, I began to get to know those guys. One, and this will lead right now into my apologetics. Here's, here's the story. Here's what got me on the internet. My wife, my, I remarried and my second wife was a graphic artist. And, there was a gentleman who kept coming by and he, he became a good friend. He was actually our computer guru. He helped set up my wife's business as graphic arts. And then of course we began doing business with him, business cards, flyers, et cetera. And uh, one day he comes in and he goes, and, and I've been sharing with him my information on from Nibley and farms and showing him some of my letters that I've, had arguments with no and, and he you know it would just razzle dazzling i was doing linguistics from akkadian and hebrew and egyptian and of course i didn't know any of this stuff i was regurgitating nibbly right but it made me sound great and it was a good testimony builder and he was already a really good mormon i was studying martial arts with him and my martial arts teacher was also lds and i was sharing it with them That was a great time. I love those guys. So one day he comes into the house because that we had a walk in business at the house. My wife did. He's sitting there and he carries on business with my wife. And then he turns to me and he goes, Carrie, I had a dream last night. The Lord wants you on the internet. It will change your life. I go, what? Internet? What's that? He goes, I've been telling you all this WWW stuff and all um, you need to get on the Internet because it's really important that you begin to share this fabulous scholarship that you have. And I didn't know what he was talking about. (laughs) And it was just when the Internet had started. Well, periodically for the next year or so, uh, we saw him maybe six times a year, right? Doing business with him. He would bring this up again. He would say, are you on the internet yet? I said, I don't even know what it is. Well, I started noticing around town people and on television, people started advertising this WWW thing. And so I knew that had something to do with computers, but I wasn't into computers. I was a scroll saw artist making wood art. And I got very good. I worked for 14 to 16 hours a day doing it while my wife was doing her graphic arts. I got my wood art up in West Yellowstone and over in Jackson Hole, Wyoming and down in California. And I did portraits of people. I actually got to where I could do portraits of Joseph Smith and the prophets and all that, you know? So I had a a fun little business, but so he, he comes in and he goes, Carrie, You're ignoring the dream. The Lord wants you on the internet. And I told him, Paul, for crying out loud, if Jesus wants me on the internet, why is he giving you the dream? (laughs) I, I want the dream. And he goes, well, you can't have the dream. It came to me and I'm telling you. Oh. I guess I'm unworthy. Get this. I guess I'm I haven't yet demonstrated my faith enough to get my kids back. I'm still unworthy, which is pure BS. But it was a very emotional thing to me, man. And I'm going, look, I, I, I'm I'm weak. I'm human. I don't even know what the internet is, but I wanna have my kids in my life what why is this happening to me man and so um sorry i i went ahead and told paul i i called him back a week later and i said okay look all right you got me cowboy what is this stupid internet thing and he was rejoicing hallelujah yeah 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 all right so and he never knew my family situation with my kids i didn't tell hardly anybody you know but uh so i get on the internet and you know the first week or two i i couldn't see the big deal about it so paul would come over and and help show me around and and all that jazz and he came over one time and he was really super duper excited he goes i have the place for you on the internet he goes let's uh He said, come on over to my house. Let's let's go jump on the computer. And I go, all right, all right. Jumped on the computer. And he takes me to this message board, what is called a message board. And he goes, see, this is called the alt-religion Mormon message board, Carrie." I go, yeah, all right. And he goes, dude, instead of writing a single letter to a minister, you can write the information here and post it on the message board and hundreds of thousands of people are going to read your scholarship. And I go, what? Hundreds of thousands. How can I, it's just a screen. So I still didn't understand, right? New technology. So he, he says, he says, dog shirts. Listen to me and I'll explain this to you. Once it clicked what the internet was, I was there. (laughs) I started posting on the Alt-Religion Mormon message board. And there are some, you know, we're on the uh, Dr. Shade's message board, right? By the way, any of you listeners who are still here with us, which will be miraculous, all two of you, the two who've remained this long, you guys need to go to the Dr. Shade's message board. This guy has a great message board, no censorship, You got different sections. So anyway, yes, you're welcome, Dr. Shades. That's my plug.
0: And if I can also add, it's called DiscussMormonism.com.
1: Correct. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I I call it Dr. Shades, but it is called DiscussMormonism.com. Is this around 1990?
0: What's that? Is this happening around 1990 when now you're starting
1: to realize the... It was 1980. Yeah, it was 1988 about then. Okay. Well, well, I started posting hundreds. I, I and I know this is ridiculous, but hundreds of posts a day on this stupid message board. And you're doing and, the opening post. What's that? You're doing the opening post hundreds of opening posts yeah yeah i 'm just i 'm sharing the good news of Mormonism and why it 's so authentic and true and refute you nimbly i double dog dare you, I can refute any argument you want, bring it on, and so of course, people started bringing it on and No, when I was at Rick's, I forgot to tell you, sorry, I jumped ahead. When I was, I went to Rick's college two years during my marriage, got my associates. And it was just general studies. While I was at Rick's, I found the improvement era in the open stacks. It was not in the special collections. It was in the open stacks. So I went to the index of the improvement era and looked up Guess who? Not Joseph Fielding Smith. And I started finding Hugh Nibley's articles that I had read in Posture Book of Mormon. So I worked in the library to help pay for my tuition and stuff like that. Forget that. I took all that money and photocopied every article of Hugh Nibley I could. And of course, the Improvement Era articles led me to the BYU studies. And of course, BYU studies led me to the Sunstone. And the Sunstone led me to the dialogue. Well, back then, it was all in the open shelves. I had free act. I photocopied everything. And I read it all. This is when I began to get the foundation for grasping the background to the message of the Joseph Smith papyri. Okay, so now all that said, it was all of that noise, all of the Hugh Nibley stuff. And and one of the things that really impressed Paul was when I shared Nibley's baptism for the dead in ancient times. That blew his, it blew my mind. It was just fantastic. It was awesome. So, okay, now fast forward back to where I am on the internet for the first time i have hundreds i have a pile i mean two to three foot pile i'm not joking of Nibley's materials and several other uh, and the farms had been gotten go they started about 1981 1980 1981 jack Welch had them going and by the time i was up there in 88 89 farms had become a regular month mu- i was subscribing to their insights and stuff like that. So I was using their materials too. Well, put me on the internet and hot dog, baby. Here we go. Let's show the critics who the boss is. Yeah, you chumps, you had, I'm here. Uh, Pure arrogance, right? I mean, it's it's almost embarrassing at this point how ridiculously combative I was. I, I was out there, nobody's gonna make fun of my religion. I'll show you and just wiping them out in my mind, right? Now, and and if he does bother to listen to my waste of time here, um, I'm going to ask a couple of people on the Mormon Discussions news group. I do believe we have a couple of those regular posters who were with me on Alt-Religion Mormon arguing against me. I do believe there are. I'm, I'm not quite sure which one, but I'll ask them or else they'll tell me. Anyway, so now I'm beginning to get the actual response to the apologetic instead of Nibley's take on what the critics mean, instead of Nibley's take on the arguments against the Book of Mormon. And this is why I I really enjoyed having the expanded farms materials because they had realistically discovered the same thing. Nibley was a voice. He was a voice, but he was only one perspective, a very powerful one, but farms had started finding other stuff, other ways to show the authenticity of the scripture that nobody else had, including Nibley, and then, you know, you had Dr. Sperry back then, and John witzel the generation earlier, when Nibley was a child, and John witzel was kind of a uh, an apostolic apologist you know he wrote the rational theology he wrote the joseph smith is a scientist and evidences and reconciliations ancients, yeah <laughs> three volumes i i have the three in one volume yeah baby i was special so anyway i'm ranting and raving and arguing back and forth well i kept having to repeat the same stupid stuff I mean, come on, you guys, how many times do I have to tell you why uh, the name of Alma is a genuine, ancient, authentic name? I've told you that 20 times. Well, as it was, because I was so voluminous. I mean, I was getting 100 emails a day and I was answering every one of them. And I mean, this went on for months. There were several LDS people who began to notice that. Holy cow, this guy is a one man wrecking crew. He is just taken on the whole pack of wolves here. We probably ought to help him. Now, and this is my arrogant, vain way of explaining their perspective. I doubt they thought that, but they really began to email me saying that was a fantastic answer. We've never seen that. That was good. So would you mind if I reuse that argument? Because I also have people, we've noticed you're complaining that people keep repeating the same question. So do we, we get that same thing too, but your answers are the best answers we've had. May we use them? I said, well, of course, this is for Jesus, this is for the Book of Mormon. This is for the church. Of course, you can reuse them. Well, we actually got together. Uh, We formed an email group. And kind of talked behind the scenes of, okay, so-and-so is saying this, what evidence do you have? And they said, well, why don't I look in this, this, this source? You look in that, that, that source. And then the other person would say, and I'll look into the, uh, the, the conference reports, the general conference. So we began to pool our resources and then spit out answers. What I failed to realize was, is I wasn't always talking to the same people on the internet. Right. I mean, the Internet had tens of thousands of people. So when new people would come on, they would ask the obvious question that I've already been asked a hundred times. And I was thinking they were just messing with me, but it was new people. Well, when that dawned on me and it dawned on us, four of us, Daryl Barksdale, Julianne Reynolds, Scott Gordon and Carrie shirts formed FAIR the Foundation for Apologetic Information and Research. I was one of the founding fathers of it. What they all said at that point, they asked, do you want to be the president? I said, oh, heavens no. No, I love to research and write and read. I don't want to sit at a desk doing administrative tasks. You know, I had all the wrong imagery in my mind. No, I want to be on the front lines. I'm the warrior, so to speak, you know. So I became the director of research scott uh, or uh, first daryl barksdale became the president and julianne reynolds was more or less the secretary but she was good she had a uh, master's in something or other and she was very good with the gnostics and with the greek materials and the new testament man and so i i was always asking her. I said, you know, I haven't studied that. I'm, I'm really into the Book of Mormon right now because of the nibbly. She goes, oh, I know. You're doing great. Keep going. But She knew some of the actual biblical scholars with the Gnostic stuff. So she was always fun to talk to. And Daryl, he was a basic, Daryl was a phenomenal cartoonist. He was a national syndicated cartoonist. He had a wicked sense of sarcasm and humor that just jived with me. I said, yeah, baby, we're going to rock and roll. We are going to kill some rump, mama, here we come, critics, and so we started fair, and Scott Gordon was a very excellent administrator. He would kind of keep us in line with, okay, we have this question in the Book of Mormon. We have this, these three questions about church history. We have these four questions about the Book of Abraham. We have these four questions about Joseph Smith. Who wants to take what? You know, Scott Gordon was a really good organizer. That's why he has been president of FAIR all this time since Daryl stepped down. Was, Daryl was president for two years. So am I boring y'all yet? I'm sorry.
0: No, actually, it's just starting to get interesting.
1: Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Whoa, we're in trouble, dude. I can go on for days. Now, Julianne Reynolds,
0: does she post on the Mormon Dialogue and Discussion Board as Julianne?
1: Yeah, I believe that is her. Uh Uh-huh,
0: yeah. Is she related to John DeLynn? I have no idea. Okay, there's a Julianne who is, and maybe I'm getting the Julianne's confused. But Carol Barksdell. He had written a pamphlet about Mormon apologetics, about responding to critics called, Guess Who Wants to Have You for Dinner, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. He put one of his cartoons on the cover.
0: And that's with the missionaries in the big pot. Yeah. They're being boiled like by cannibals, except instead of cannibals, he has different ministers from different religions standing around and sharpening their knives, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. That's the one
0: yep okay
1: yeah yeah and and i just laughed like crazy when i saw that cartoon i said daryl i envy you so much for your cartoon talent so i think it's pretty clear now but can you tell us specifically
0: what was the purpose in forming this organization called fair
1: oh uh we decided look there's four of us we can we can organize and pool. uh we can categorize the questions that are being asked and let's start a website and what we can do behind the scenes here in the fair in the email list is we can work up a study uh, of a response to the argument and then we can post it on the website and instead of having to constantly my complaint was I have 250, 300 books on my desk at all times. And I have to go through to find this research and all. And then I, I do another question. And then I have to completely re-research the, the same stupid question that's taken up too much time. By having the website, we put the article on the website and just refer people to it. Hey, hey. We're talking genius here. Now, this is the original days of the internet, you know. What Nowadays, pardon? What year was this? Oh, let's see. We had our, when was our first fair conference? Hang on just one sec. Okay, I'm sorry, we've lost. Uh, there the, uh, st- it is. So I still have the original journal of fair Mormon apologetics, baby. Uh, we had our first this is volume one this is a classic except i've written all over in it oh my 1999 okay so we had we we worked uh the internet for quite a while and we were publishing materials for the website and all that jazz and we got talking about hey we need to have a A conference because we were seeing farms do some of their stuff. Now farms was getting big and they were getting popular. And we were so envious of their skill and talent and knowledge because they had the PhDs and the master's degrees. We were a bunch of punk nobodies, but we were enthusiastic online. Yeah, we can do this stuff too. Just not as scholarly, right? So we are the riffraff. We are the John Q public. They are the scholars. So as time went on, uh, we decided let's uh, let 's do a conference and let's get all of the uh, farm scholars to come to our conference and our own people. Now, at this time, it was after this conference we We had the conference. it was in my opinion, a huge success at the time for our first one, this is the, this is the write up on it. At this conference, I was so gung ho and I've got to tell you this story. This is where I became friends with John Twentos. The man had a heart of gold. He was awesome. He told the, uh, he told the scholar and he told me, he said this, he told me later on that he told him this. And I guess that's why farms kind of, uh, got to know who I was a little bit, uh, John told him, don't underestimate this Carrie Shirts guy. He really has a gift. And, and I mean, John's dead now, but thanks, John. That was very kind of you. It was not true, but it was very kind. So I gave my paper and and I've got it in here. It's called The Archaeology of God at the first fair conference. right? And this is where I met. Uh, oh, uh, what's his nose? oh man, I hope he doesn't get mad at me for calling him that, uh, Kevin Barney. Yeah, Kevin Barney, The and he he has great knowledge with uh, biblical Hebrew, and now he's expanded into biblical Greek, and uh, he does a little bit of German, but Barney is just, I, I mean, he is a cut above the rest. The, this guy is so good. I love Kevin Barney. So, I gave him a talk on the archaeology of God. I spent one year on this stupid paper because we knew a year in advance we were going to... And I said, okay, this is my first conference. I want to make this little baby count. I want to really make a big splash in the world. Watch out. Here I come, baby. And I had 690-foot notes <laughs> in ridiculous paper. And I showed... All of the archaeological discoveries, you know, the old, the, the inscriptions, the, the ancient texts, yeah, the Dead Sea Scrolls. The... I showed how all of the ancient inscriptions and stuff demonstrated that the Mormon idea of God was more valid archaeologically than the Christian idea that God is just a spirit without a body. And now, I'm not kidding. There are archaeological texts. Mark Smith, one of the great biblical scholars. Anybody who studied the Bible knows I'm not Buffalo in here. Mark Smith, you guys. And uh, uh, Frank Moore Cross, he's another one. I'm trying to think of who else. Uh, I've got their books around here somewhere. Not so much Joseph Fitzmaier, but Mark Smith is the man, Mark D. Smith. He wrote the monotheism of, of early Judaism in Israel. And and uh, oh, William Dever, William Dever. Yes. And he wrote, did God have a wife? And he answered that in the positive because of the archaeological materials. Well, some of these early Ugaritic, uh, I, I say Ugaritic, I got to be careful here. It might be the Akkadian. It's been a while since I've read this stuff. I've got to we'll Forgive it.
0: you. We'll forgive you.
1: Okay, yeah. thank you. Can anyway.
0: Question, Kerry.
1: Oh, 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 just one sec. Okay. There are texts that discuss El, who in LDS parlance now is Elohim, the father See, Joseph Smith really messed it up by saying that's God's name. Okay, let's forgive him for that for now. El, the ancient Canaanite god, El, and his sons, the 70 sons of the nations. Yahweh is one of them. You've got Baal. You've got Baal's argument with Moat, death, so on and so forth. El is described as the grand old man, the white-haired, long beard, the typical depiction in the cartoons of God, but it describes him with his Can I say this word without getting bleeped? His organ, his penis, the text describes it. And so in my archaeology of God book, in my article, I describe this. God has a body, man. It talks about the hand of God, his head, his beard, his eyes, etc. Well, this is an anthropomorphic deity. And so I said, archaeologically, this confirms the Mormon view, not the Christian view. That was my whole intent. I read this whole stupid paper, dude. Now, I'm not kidding. I'm going along thinking I'm having a blast. I mean, the room is full of, uh, oh, there might have been, what, 20 of us, maybe max. It was a small conference. It was our first one, you know. But And and thank goodness. uh, I mean, Dan Peterson. That's when I met Dan Peterson. John Twetness was there. John Gee. I met Kevin Barney. Uh, There were several other people that we met and talked with. And I'm sitting there reading my paper, trying to get everyone excited and all, you know. And (laughs) about an hour and a half into this stupid thing, John Twetness is in the back, right? And he Somehow he got a hold of a uh, a cardboard placard, and it was probably two feet by three feet, right? And i was talking, and when I look over to him, he holds this placard up, and only only I can see it because he's in the back, and it basically said "shut." Up already? You're <laughs> done. We got the point. You're going on too long, and and so I I hurried and skipped the last couple of parts, and so anyway, and that's how John and I became good friends. <laughs> and he said, "Dude, now see, this was my first conference. I didn't know. I you know I thought I thought this is where we really let it all out and let's discuss the evidences together and all that jazz." And he said dude, it's a conference for Pete's sake. You're only supposed to speak for 15 to 20 minutes. What are you doing talking for two and a half hours? And he was laughing with me and teasing me. So uh, he, I think he monicked the name, the long winded backyard professor for me or something like that. But Anyway. Okay. What well, next? Continue
0: with fair in your relationship with fair. So you've got this website up. You're putting up great scholarly answers to refer people to right are dealing with questions coming in electronically from people who are having questions about the church they have doubts you're helping to minister to them and helping them find faithful answers to their questions you're starting this conference now and you're starting to make contacts through the conference with other big names in farms right so take us from there
1: okay well uh at that conference matt oh matt Roper. I met Matt Roper there too. Matt Roper and John Twetness. Oh, and D Charles Pyle, man. I can't forget him. He'll slap me silly if I'm not careful. Uh, John Twetness and Matt Roper and I shared a bedroom at D Charles Pyle's house during the conference. It was held in California. Now don't get all hyper on me. It was a bunk bed, uh, twetness slept on the bottom bunk i slept in the separate bed and roper was on the top bunk and we didn't get any sleep at all we had so much cotton picking fun i never knew how funny john twetness was that man is so hilarious we just had a ball matt was telling us all about his uh you know if you read the farms review of books much uh I did. I read them all several times. In fact, I cross-referenced and indexed them all together with all of my other scholarly research, you know, Hiram Andrus, God, Man in the Universe, all the nibbly stuff, Terrell Givens, Barry Bickmore. Oh, we published Barry Bickmore's book, too, on the early church, uh, Restoring the Ancient Church, Joseph Smith and Early Christianity. Barry's now doing geography, geography, geology at BYU, a very good geologist, by the way. Anyway. Uh, so we we stayed up all night long, just making f- fun of everything and and describing the conference and all that jazz. And they, of course, ribbed me about being so long-winded and putting everybody to sleep. And yeah, the room was hot and stuffy. You know, it was in one of the state centers down there in California. I I can't remember the name of this. Uh, God it, the town. Uh, it was where the last stand of the redwoods are, and and I got to see the redwoods. Absolutely magnificent stuff. I mean, those trees make everything else look like toothpicks. They are astonishingly gorgeous. So what was I lying about? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Roper told me then that his big deal. Now, he had dreams. If you ever read the review of the books, you you saw several articles of Matt Roper. discussing, uh, kind of sharing his idea, and describing how the tanners are just slightly skewed. They didn't quite have the correct perspective, uh, and that led them to make errors in their interpretation of scripture, of church history, of prophets, apostles, and so on and so forth. And so that's what we talked about all night long. Well, next time I went down to farms after the conference. Uh, John Twetness, which he was my best friend of farms. He always invited me into his office. Curry shirts, come on in, man. I'll tell you about my latest research. And he was so good with Hebrew. Oh my gosh, he was an animal with Hebrew. Roper didn't uh, didn't analyze. It didn't seem to me like uh, he was getting his masters. He got his masters in some kind of a social uh, sociology, something or other. But don't kid yourself. Uh, Roper was the backbone of research with farms. uh, The man was always up in the BYU. He knew exactly where to tell me to go find something. In the subject, I said, "Hey, look! I'm looking up this and that in in Judaism, or or something about the Old Testament, Hebrew, whatever. The Greek and the Septuagint. Where do I go? Oh, yeah, that's on the uh, the fourth floor. Go to aisle J, six feet down to the left. It's that third section up from the floor. And I'm not kidding, man. Every time I went there, it was there." The whole set, he had the BYU library memorized. He collected all of the Tanner's material. Dude, I had no idea they were so productive. I mean, the, the stack is two and a half feet, the three feet tall, and there's 10 stacks of it, man. Gerald Tanner was an animal. <laughs> he was publishing everything. And Matt told me he had a dream that he had reconverted the Tanners. And so in order to help him fulfill that dream, first, he had to collect all of the Tanners. And he he told me about the politics involved in doing that. (laughs) And BYU, of course, has as a repository all of the animal materials they were told to, early on in Joseph Smith's day gather all the writings, you know, all the journals, all the writings, everything that's ever said about the church. Well, they're still doing that, but they put them in special sections so that the public can't get to them nowadays because they're so paranoid. But well, and then there's idiots that went and abused the system and stole stuff. And I think the Tanners were partly guilty of that as well, in some cases, especially with the paparai. So, you know, but uh, Roper (laughs) gathered all this stuff and he was writing on it. And he said he dreamed he reconverted them. So first you had to collect all of it. Well, farms didn't like all that animal stuff hanging around, so he kind of stuck it off in his corner desk, and he was showing me some of the early research. I said, "Man, I got to get. Can I photocopy all this?" He goes, "Do you have the money?" I go, "God, there's always a catch, isn't there?" I said, "Well, no." He goes, "Well, you know
0: you can get any photo. You can get any photocopies you want in this world for money." (laughs)
1: <laughs> right <laughs> or any book as far as that goes yeah i know so and i never bothered with that but when i when i went and visit with Twettness, he would tell me his latest research and his uh his fabulous uh discovery in one of uh these ancient books and i, I mean Twettness's library was just mouth-watering man it was farms library but um his office had all the good sumptuous early uh Christian, the, uh, the Coptic, he had the and he did uh, he did study Egyptology a little bit, this was just before John Gee showed up at Farms. Uh, John Gee showed up the next year and I got to know him not as well. John, John Twetness was much more, uh, he was, and I'm going to say, don't get the wrong impression. Um, maybe I got the wrong impression, but he was a, a you on the back. Hey buddy, come on in. But, but he was scholarly when he did his research. He was just down to earth. He was a human being. He was awesome. I love this man. We had so much good fun in his office talking about the latest research, you know. He said, hey, I'm, I'm doing a big study on the uh, Testament of the 12 Patriarchs. Well, he told me that for like four years. And of course, at this time in fair, I wanted to be very informed. I wanted to be a good apologist. Well, that means, yes, be familiar with the Mormon material, But you also have to be familiar with the other uh, side, the other stuff. I need more non-Mormons so that I don't come across as so subjective and biased, just quoting Mormons. So I needed to find materials that helped me um, defend Mormonism from the non-Mormon point of view. It would give me an objectivity. So that's what I began to do. And I would go down to BYU library, well, three or four times a year. And every time, of course, I stopped into farms. Well, after four years, John Twitness told me that it fizzled. The Testament of the Twelve Patriarchs study wasn't going to go through, but he was doing some really good biblical material stuff. And so I went down. What I was doing is I was photocopying all of Hugh Nibley's footnotes materials especially out of his Improvement Era articles, A New Look at the Pearl of Great Price. That was phenomenal. That was so spectacular. Where does Nibley get all this stuff? Well, when I went to BYU Library, there it was. All in the open stacks still. Today it's not, which is too bad, but... Back then, I was just smart enough to go spend several, several days and weeks going back and forth in the library. And I was photocopying all that stuff. I photocopied off two file cabinets, four drawer file cabinets. I filled those and I had stacks of paper on top of each one of those file cabinets that went all the way to the ceiling. I spent thousands of dollars photocopying all that crap Uh, or scholarly stuff, (laughs) and reading it, trying to read it. And, of course, that means I had to – I bought one of those electronic translators from German and French to English because I didn't take the time to learn the languages fluently, although I was studying them. I dabbled. That's what I am. I'm a dabbler. It kind of sucks in a way. I wish I would have focused, but I never did. So that's it's all –
0: water into the bridge. So. Right, because a lot of the books that he cites to are written
1: in German or in French. Yeah. Yeah. They really are. Yeah. Uh and and i i I got to where I could get the gist of the articles in some cases. In other cases, I had a friend who knew German and uh, he was willing to translate these articles for me and and that that was another way that i and then, as the internet kept going and got better and better and better, translators came online, and I was using those so but it was his English articles also I was reading. And I was talking to John about that, and what I was doing was I was using Hugh Nibley's arguments, but I was, and, and in many cases, I had his sources that he quoted, and I was checking on those quotes to make sure he was quoting them correctly. And believe it or not, the majority of time, he was. He was doing a pretty good job. That's not a joke. But uh, you have an eight-page article and you quote a paragraph, a three-line paragraph. And yeah, you quoted it correctly. But when I read through the article, it was a completely different topic than what Nibley used that point for to support the book of Abraham. And I really got into the book of Abraham. In fact, after a few years with Fair. I decided I needed to do the Book of Abraham facsimiles, right? And so I I tried like crazy to collect all the facsimiles. I started getting all the Egyptological grammar books, Gardner's Egyptian grammar, Faulkner. I bought the coffin texts. I bought the Book of the Dead. Uh, The pyramid texts were way too expensive, so I used Nibley's materials on that. Uh, And I could only ever find them in German anyway down at BYU, faulkner's edition again but i never did photocopy them way too pricey they're huge texts my gosh they're grand uh anyway i got all of this stuff together and i was finding materials that Nibley didn't use so i was photocopying other materials that i thought should have been used that was even better than what he was using in some cases no, I didn't have any delusions of grandeur about doing Nibley, but I at least wanted to try to catch up to him. So I made my own website, Mormonism Researched, and I began to put a whole bunch of stuff on the Book of Abraham facsimiles on that website and the Book of Mormon and church history and Joseph Smith. Anyway, you know, I, I just. 15 hours a day, I was working on this website while I was working 15 more hours a day doing my art while I was working 15 more hours a day taking care of stuff. You know, my days had to be 222 hours long. Back then, I was a youthful, energetic, gung-ho, woohoo! I can do this, baby. I didn't need any sleep. I survived on two to three hours of sleep for about six years.
0: So this is around 2000 to 2005? Right. Let me yeah. tell you something here that I've sure. since recognized that uh, apologetics has two main parts to it. One of which is answering questions that people have. And right. in, other, in, in other words, showing that Mormonism isn't false. Right. Okay. Answering the questions. And then the other half being showing all these great evidences that show it's true. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. It sounds to me like you're doing that with fair the fair website you're answering the questions that people have right you have this passion especially about the book of abraham and showing all the egyptological evidence that shows right. true so you started a separate web page and that was called
1: research mormon Re- mormonism Mo- research. Mo- mormonism researched and i did it to mock the tanners because they had or no 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 not the tanners uh walter martin because he had a uh Oh, I can't remember the name of his website, but he had a website where he talked about something researched or something with Mormonism. Mormonism refuted through research or something. So I I made my Mormonism research and began directly taking on the anti-Mormons.
0: And I had actually gone onto your website at some point in the past and was overwhelmed. I remember seeing a couple of baboons with solar disks. Right, yeah, I I was. And you you were making some comment about it. I can't remember what your comment was. (laughs) <laughs> and, uh, but I remember I was impressed by it enough to remember the monkeys.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The monkeys in the moon. And yeah, that was, that was some fun stuff. Oh, the good. And get you're doing all this stuff,
0: you are now um, spending more time than you have per day, doing all of this. And where does this lead you?
1: Oh, sleep was a complete waste of time. Why on earth did the Lord make us this way? That was stupid. That was just stupid. Why can't I just be awake 24 seven? I have work to do. I have God to prove. Dang it. Come on, man. So, uh I went to p- part of my problem was I was on the board of directors affair. Tell us about that. Uh how much time has gone by? An hour?
0: An hour and a half.
1: No. We just started this is ridiculous. Okay. Well now, now we're down to one listener. So I apologize for your problem, dude, um, or ma'am. It's probably a woman because they're so much better at apologetics than we are. And that's the one thing that the men haven't figured out yet. Don't tell any Mormons that. But. So that's our little secret, right? Okay. Okay i was I, I was on the board of directors and uh, there was probably six of us at the time now this was fairly early on this was the this was in the second year and uh, we had a phone conference and uh unfortunately it came out that the funds of fare were being misappropriated and i was oh, i was furious uh someone had bought hires for their car with the funds and they they had to buy a new camera and so and i mean we were on a shoestring budget for crying out loud and we here we are trying to defend the truth teach the truth and fun i'm i'm not gonna say who but funds were were, were, huh you want me to say who
0: if you want to take that responsibility well, yeah, it was the president, Scott Gordon, right? No, it was the president, Daryl Barksdale. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, I had it wrong. It was the president, but it was Scott Barksdale.
1: Yeah, yeah, Daryl Barksdale. Daryl Barksdale was only president for the first two years. And then I, we were we were on a phone conference with all of the board of directors. There were like six or seven of us. And I just came unglued. I said, what? it why i mean that that is just man that is that that will ruin us what the heck man no 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 uh and and i was so mad i said i don't even want to be on the board of directors i'm gonna step down right now i said this this is not the direction i want to go man we we started as a separate independent organization from the church And we have to stand up hard, solid and tall and be perfect, more or less, because we've got the world watching. We've made enough noise on the Internet. Now everybody's starting to come to us. And now this is happening. And I don't want to go through legal ramifications. I don't want to have to go through court. Uh, This is all wrong. This is not what I envisioned. I want to research right defend i'm stepping down and so did two others i mean it just about blew fair apart the two Uh, others were julianne uh i can't remember the name of the one guy he was having health issues and you know i i can't remember if it was julianne that stepped down or not uh anyway that half the board basically quit and walked away and uh Man, that was a dark day for me. I, I I was not happy at that. In fact, I do believe that was the incentive for me to start my own web page because I decided uh, I'm not going to contribute to the. This was the beginning of the rift because I'm not going to contribute to the fair web page because if they start getting into legal troubles, and and. It, and they're shut down then my research is lost so I, I do believe that is what caused me to start my own web page so anyway long story short uh i had a falling out with daryl now i stayed with fair uh and and i quit being the director of research i said you know what this was when i started my web page because it's when i quit being the director of research that i started my own page i said you know what i I'm going to do my own thing here. And and a lot of us began doing that. That was when web pages started to become famous. This was before blogs were blogs came later, but web pages was huge. And so each one of us, actually Kevin Graham and several of us did uh, Paul Osborne. I believe he did web pages too. So I, I started doing web pages and uh, we had a falling out and there was a fair email list like i said and this had grown enormously there were at least a hundred of us now on the list and we were all talking and finding strategies we were helping each other do web pages and uh it was really kind of fun we got uh some of the farms Boys, as I called them, and I, and I did not mean that as an insult. As an apologist, I was calling them the farm boys. You know, the good old boys, the guys helping us defend the church, or we're helping them, whatever. Uh, and John Twitness got on the list, and uh, he was very—he loved to speculate about the pre-mortal uh, existence, intelligence versus spirits. I remember we had some long, deep, really powerful doctrinal discussions. I wish like crazy i would have printed all that out while well, i would have had a stack mile high anyway so all of a sudden and then scott gordon became president they all nominated him right and and he's done a fabulous job he really has uh, i disagree with a lot of the stuff he says of course now i disagree with pretty much everything fair says but you know uh, at the time uh, we were really glad he was on and they still are i'm sure uh, we began to have an issue with, well, for instance, Van Hale joined us. And uh, like I say, Kevin Graham was on and, and John Gee was there. Uh, I believe Matt Roper was on John Twettness was uh, Dan Peterson was, but he was so busy with the farms review books that he didn't contribute a whole lot. And we, we told him, yeah, yeah, no, that's good. You, you go do your thing, man. Absolutely. We love those books. Well, uh, as it turned out, uh, Scott Gordon came out and said, we are going to uh, invite one of the general authorities, a 70, onto our email list. And the reason why he did that is because Van Hale, bless his heart, he got on there. and, And I had, you know, he's the pamphleteer, the can a true prophet believe in moon man he did he did a wonderful pamphlet on the Adam God doctrine you know and I got no him pretty well and I was thrilled to have him on the email list well, yeah this is great and uh, so come to find out Van Hale doesn't believe in the historicity of the Book of Mormon <laughs> you're going what you gotta be kidding me yeah are you loony and he was very sincere, he said. Listen, I have a testimony. I know Joseph Smith's a true prophet. Uh that's not that's not even an issue. And I know the Book of Mormon is inspired fiction. And he he said the fatal F word. And they kicked him off. Man, they kicked him off the fair email list. And I'm going, wow whoa, wait. And then Kevin Graham got talking and John Gee said something to Kevin Graham and Kevin Graham said, you're lying to me. There is no way that an Egyptologist said what you're saying. And we're going, whoa, 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 hold on. Wait, 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 Kevin. Uh, don't accuse John Gee of lying. I mean, look, we're all friends and brothers and sisters here. We're working together. We're all the, we're all the good guys. And Kevin Graham came on court. He went to a quote, real Egyptologist. And then he gave us the Egyptologists reply. And They kicked Kevin Graham off the email list. (laughs) Do you remember what this issue was about? Huh? Do you remember what this issue was about? I do. It was one of John Gee's interpretations of one of the parts of the papyri.
0: So John Gee's on your email list.
1: Email list. This is the behind the scenes to help us produce good materials for the web pages.
0: And he's talking about one of the, I'm sorry, one of the, uh, did you say papyri-
1: I, I can't remember the exact papyri- detail it was it was something to do with the uh, uh, hand or wing. I had done a big article on my web. I can't remember the exact issue. But anyway, John said the Egyptologists agreed with him. And Kevin Brandt Graham said, no, they don't. So this and I was trying to whether deco-
0: those those lines that remain on the Joseph Smith papyri above Abraham in facsimile one are correctly restored by joseph smith to be the fingers of his hand or the wing of a bob bird that's hovering above osiris
1: yes yeah yeah i i I can't remember if that's the exact issue but it was something similar to that
0: so john he says not only is this a hand these egyptologists or this specific egyptologist agree agrees that this is a hand and not a wing
1: of a bird and kevin graham said wait a minute that's not what the egyptologists say And John Gee said, oh, yes, it is. So Kevin went to an Egyptologist, man. And I mean, the brazenness. I I was shocked at that. But he came back with an answer. And the Egyptologist backhanded John Gee. And they kicked Kevin Graham off the list. And and I'm sitting back and I'm going, wait, hold it here. Is all of our... Are we unraveling here? Whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. Quit kicking people off the list for Pete's sake. We're all on the same side here, man. What what is going on? And then I told Scott, I said, look, and and several of us voiced the objection, uh, but I was probably the loudest mouth. I said, listen up, cowboy. As one of the, you know, here comes the old authoritar trick. I'm telling you, I hold the fair Kesedic priesthood here. I was one of the original founders, and we demand independence. We will not be under the church's wing. We started this to remain independent, man. And Gordon goes, look, dude, you're no longer on the board of directors. You don't have a say in it. So shut up, sit down, and mind your P's and Q's.
0: And this is about... The suggestion that Scott Gordon made about bringing a general authority and making him part of the email list.
1: Yeah. And he did, too. It was one of the 70s. I can't remember which one.
0: So in other words, now, instead of just you um, apologists talking amongst yourselves about research, about what would be good answers to certain questions, about all the things you're talking about. Now, Uh, Scott Gordon wants to bring a general authority in who will be able to read
1: everything that you're talking about. Yeah, well, he even he even admitted, and this was true. This is basically when, well, Kevin Graham, after he was kicked off, of course he he jumped out. He became an enemy. By the way, the Egyptologist he went to was Robert Rittner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. No Why did John Gee got so mad? <laughs> <laughs> John Gee, John Gee but, talk- see- Scott Gordon behind the scenes. And this was before all of the real big fallout between Rittner and Key happened, too. Hmm. But I mean, Kevin Graham went straight to the top. (laughs) Spectacular. Did the kicking out of Van Hale
0: and Kevin Graham happen before or after the General Authority was made part of this email
1: list? Before. Because, well, I mean, you can't possibly say the Book of Mormon is inspired fiction on our fair email list, and you can't possibly threaten our main Egyptologist with real knowledge, with a with a professional Egyptologist. We have to do what the brethren want. And that was Scott Gordon's approach. I said, I don't care what the brethren want. We're an independent research group. He goes, no, well, I mean, if the brethren tell us to shut it down, we're shutting it down. I said, over my dead body, and he goes, "You're not on the board, dude. You, you 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 just back out. This isn't your decision to make anymore. You gave up that."
0: So well, you envisioned this originally, and apparently you thought everybody else was on board with the other three original founders. Well, there were
1: several people who objected to the GA. No, I wasn't the lone voice. Like who? But oh, I can't remember. There were so many people on the list, uh, but. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. That, that started a rift, at least from my perspective. So I didn't post on the list for quite a while. I, I got busy and built up my own web page. I said, to heck with it, man. Fair's not going the direction I can at least make my webpage powerful. So because, because even back then as an apologist, I was saying, what if they tell us though, that we can't, qu-? my fear at that point, uh, and this was just before the light bulb turned on in my mind of what the real background uh, is. What uh, oh, was I lying about? I was afraid that... I can't remember what I was going to say. Well, I could halfheimers. I'm, I'm old enough to have Halfheimers,
0: not Alzheimer's. I can understand your concerns about being independent in the first instance, but it appears it's Scott Gordon's vision for FAIR was to bring it under the umbrella of the church. that Yeah. History, whatever the brethren tell him to do with right. FAIR. And therefore, he's going to try and start making it more and more acceptable to the church. And frankly, he's gotten to the point where there's a link to FAIR on the church's website. And oh, yeah. nowadays, he's got general authorities coming to give keynote addresses at the FAIR conference. So apparently, that's worked to that extent.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, hey, when I uh, when I heard farms was being subsumed under BYU, I went down there deliberately and talked to Dan Peterson. And I said, hey, uh, I really don't know if this is a good idea. I mean, you guys are doing such magnificent work. I don't want to see you become like Lagrand Richards. I can't remember which channel. Anyway, I said you guys have to stay independent, man. They're gonna start making you say they're they're gonna make you come to conclusions that the scholarship is is not coming to, and you need. To, and he agreed. He said, "Hey, I I know that." He goes, "I really am hoping that doesn't happen." I said, "Dan." It's almost inevitable, man. You guys have to remain independent. And I remember using the example. Now I can't, again, it was either Kent Jackson or Robert Millett or whatever, One of the exasperating things to me about the LDS-BYU scholars is these guys have PhDs from University of Chicago. They have PhDs from UCLA and Berkeley and all that. Why are you quoting Bruce Armikaki and LeGrand Richards for crying out loud, man? Where is your Hebrew and Greek? Where is your analysis of the New Testament? Why on earth? Are you quoting the student institute manual? Are you kidding me? Go to a Greek lexicon. You know, do like D. Charles Pyle does. Where is the scholarship? It was driving me nuts. And I was complaining about that on the fair email list. And it finally dawned on me, man, they're never going to do this. What? See, part of my problem uh, is that I wanted to know every issue because I had to be a good apologist, I had to be able to answer the questions, man, and it had to be credible. Come on, let's go credible here. Well, you can't be no offense, you beloved priesthood totem revelation receiving brethren, but. You're not quotable, I'm sorry, you're not. When I began studying the biblical scholarship and they analyzed the archeological materials from Karatepe, from the Akkadian, the Sumerian, the Egyptian, from Cairo, I mean, man, we need more Hugh Nibley's, right? That's why John Gee got into it. We need more Hugh We need more scholarship, credible scholarship, good scholarship. We don't quote general authorities in the worldly scholarship journals. They won't publish it. And we didn't have it. And that's what I was afraid the farms was going to become. And Dan told me, well, we're we're going to try our best to uh, remain as, as, as uh, scholarly uh, as we know how we're going to try to uh, keep things uh, in depth. And I said, man, I've never had so much fun reading your stuff. You have to, you can't become like general conference, you know, years later, uh, Peterson was on the uh, uh, I mean, he told us about this on the, uh, on his blog He was on the, uh, oh, come on, the lesson committee that writes the lessons for the, the church, for the priesthood meeting and the Relief Society and all that. And he actually came flat out and said, you know what? Those lessons aren't really very good, but our hands are tied. We're told what to write. And you go, that's my point. Exactly. That's why fair had to remain independent for crying out loud. That's why farms had to remain independent for crying out loud. Yes, and farms
0: m- did not remain independent. It got co-opted by BYU. It was moved on to the campus. And then a few years later, Daniel Peterson gets fired.
1: Yeah, yeah, it all goes south, right? <laughs> and, then, and then fair, of course, with great fear and trepidation. Of course, they'll disagree with this assessment, which is perfectly fine. But as I said, in truth, with great fear and trepidation, they succumb to what the brethren want them to conclude. And, In what ways uh, do they do that? Well, they come to the conclusion. They already have the conclusion. Listen, my research here. Okay. Here's the error I was making as an apologist. The astonishing thing is you cannot see this. And I know this sounds so stupid. I am not joking, man. You can not see it. You're on the inside. You think you're doing credible scholarship. You think you're really learning. You think, wow, what a blessing, what an opportunity. Yes, it's a great responsibility. I have to be as credible, as good, as valuable, as valid, as authentic as I can. I need to demonstrate this scripture. I need to demonstrate that prophecy. I need to demonstrate that aspect of church history. I have to show how Joseph Smith is in the clear, how even though, yes, it looks like it's a problem. No. It's not a problem. With our valid research, we have what John Twentness was working on in a huge book of his called The Hits of Joseph Smith. What about all these authentic items? Sheum in the Book of Mormon. What about the king's name, in fact, number three of the Book of Abraham? Yes, you're welcome, Shulam. Paul Osborne, yeah, baby. I'll tell you the name of the king. His name is John Gee, in the hieroglyphics. Oh, no, wait, that would be <laughs> that would be Isis. Come on, you know, we're gonna make Shulam laugh, right? You gotta give look, you gotta give that guy credit. He has been screaming for 10 15 years, What is the name of the king in facsimile number three? Because nobody including Joseph Smith, translates that correctly. Joseph Smith got that wrong. He blew it. And we all know it. All the Mormon Egyptologists know that. But yet they insist, Kerry Molstein, stupidly enough, says 100% of Joseph Smith's interpretations of the facsimiles are correct. What? Do you think we're drunk, stupid, blind? We don't read comics on can't you at least try to get just a smidgen credible boy i'm on a rant aren't i i'm sorry
0: you are you are but let me bring you back to because what you were where you were going originally sorry (laughs) i don't mean to go it's okay you're you're testing my ability to keep you on track but where you were going i think was you couldn't see it
1: yes 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 um I was, I was, listen, as an apologist, you don't do research. Now this is the, (laughs) you go, dude, you're so dumb. No, no, just bear with me. An apologist does not do research. He does apologetics. What's the difference. Here was my method because I got it straight from Hugh Nibley, and I do believe it is since Kimura, where he tells his methodology of all things, right? Our favorite Book of Mormon book of Hugh Nibley, you and I, at one point. You already have the answers. You just have to find the evidence to confirm Joseph Smith is right, and that's how you research. What I was doing in all of those articles that I photocopied that Nibley was using, as well as wherever else I could get anything, is, oh, Joseph Smith says, this is named Shinyha in the book of Abraham, facsimile. Oh, Joseph Smith says, this is Of course, we now know that was Hebrew, but, you know, he says, oh, this is the the king as given by the hieroglyph above his hand. So what you do is you look through this vast amount of material, and I spent hundreds of hours. Many people have spent tens of thousands, but for me at the time, being a starving artist, to spend hundreds of hours in BYU Library was impressive, I looked through tens of thousands of articles, books, the Journal of Egyptian Archaeology, the Journal of Near Eastern Studies, hundreds of different journals, scholarly journals that Nibley had looked into. I was finding what matched Joseph Smith. And if I had to take it out of complete context, which is always the case, then I did. So my research confirming the various interpretations of the facsimiles in the book of Abraham and Joseph Smith's interpretations, yes, I could put together a, a seven-page paper, and look at me, rock and roll, baby, I am number one. I've given you 110 footnotes with 95 sources. Beat that. And you know, someone like Gaddy Anton or Kish <laughs> they'll just refute it in one sentence. (laughs) That's how good they are. Right. You know, over on the Mormon discussions board, but back then it was heady thing for me to show that, look, we have hundreds of sources showing Joseph Smith was accurate. Right. Right. Well, that's apologetics.
0: That's apologetics. And I've been there too, mainly with the, um, Oh, the pseudepigrapha for the Old Testament. And the New Testament. and And going through these texts, and I'm doing the exact same thing that you were. I'm looking for places where I can make correlations with Mormonism in any way possible. And I have some success. I mark some things up. I'm nowhere near to the extent that you were. But after reading a ton, a ton, a ton of stuff, and I still have some of the books here, it started to dawn on me that what I was doing was it was like I'm panning for gold in a river and I take up a bunch of dirt and I try and pan through, pan through, and maybe there's nothing there. And I take some more dirt and I'm going all day long and maybe I get a few specks of gold, but I've gone through actually cubic tons of dirt in order to come up with these little bits of gold. And I started realizing that all this dirt that I'd gone through to get there was just as important to the person who wrote it originally as these little specks of gold that I was finding so valuable. But everything else that they thought was important enough to write down and that subsequent people thought important enough to preserve over the centuries and the thousands of years, all I'm doing is disregarding it, treating it with complete disrespect because it doesn't suit my purpose. And I think in my mind, I started realizing that I was committing a certain logical fallacy the name of which I probably did not know at the time, but which has been known as the Texas sharpshooter. Oh yeah. Fallacy. And that's where what it, a get,
1: great analogy.
0: Yeah, yeah. And that's where you've got, um, you know, you're finding bullseyes, right? You're finding all these bullseyes where Joseph all Smith the time hit yeah. the mark. But what you can't see is that these bullseyes are against this vast wall of material that is yeah. out there. And yeah. every now and then there might be a hit but I couldn't possibly count the number of misses that I had to go through in order to find the hits because it's like. But
1: but you you didn't need to because see the misses aren't important because they don't build your faith and testimony, right. and so once you find a hit, hot dang, let's do a fireside on Sunday night with the stake and the tri-state group because we have found evidence for Joseph Smith.
0: Yes, and those are the parts yeah. that are uh, significant uh, to me. But then I started realizing. I started also realizing that as I read through this stuff, you know, Mormonism has a certain position on beliefs. I know it's changed on a lot of those over time, but that makes it easier to find uh, connections in the literature. Oh yeah! But the other thing was this: that as I read all of this stuff, I started realizing that among all these different authors that I'm I'm reading, they have all these different perspectives and all these different beliefs. They're not unified in what they believe. They're coming at it from all sorts of different angles and all sorts of different religious backgrounds. And they're promoting different beliefs on the same issue. Mm -hmm. And then I started realizing, well, if all these guys anciently have all these different beliefs on the same issue, then isn't that making it easier for me to find the ones that match Mormonism because they all have different beliefs. So I can find one here, I can find one over here and I can find one over here. And now I've got proof that Joseph Smith was a
1: prophet. Yeah, not only that, the, uh, the contextual apparatus that an apologist will use in early Christianity in order to demonstrate a restoration does just that type of cherry picking. Because there's no such thing as and original Christianity. Right. And that's that's the essence of scholarship right now. Really, really interesting. There never was an original singular Christian view.
0: Yeah. Bart Ehrman did a book called Early Christianities where he talks about the fact that we have the idea that if we go back far enough and we'll come back to the original source, the original pure Christianity, he says, actually, if we go back as far as we possibly can to the first century, Um, We find immediately the earliest thing we find are multiple forms of Christianity, which actually are so different amongst themselves that they make the different Protestant churches today look absolutely unified in what they believe.
1: Right, Elaine Pagels also found that out
0: from the Gnostic Gospels. I know. Yeah,
1: yeah, from from her research into early Christianity, she discovered that, wow, there's a lot of different groups here. So So the question is, which one of them was restored? Because some elements of Mormonism, yes, it parallels that particular church father. But other elements of Mormonism parallel that particular church father. But that particular church father and this particular church father, father were different. They were arguing against each other, and they were not unified. So they were anathemizing each other. (laughs) Right. And what we
0: end up with is we'll pick one thing that matches Mormonism from this church father, who's arguing with this church father. And we'll take another thing from this church father over here, category B that matches and we'll do this. And what never occurred to me until later, after I put in all this effort, which once again is minimal compared to everything you did, but still it's substantial. And uh, what occurred to me was, you know, after, 100 cubic tons of dirt to get these gold nuggets, these gold flakes. It suddenly occurred to me that what would be miraculous under these circumstances is if there were absolutely no connections in any of this vast body of literature to any religion, including
1: Mormonism. Oh. Hey, you're kind of, you're kind of, uh, that kind of gets you somewhat in a roundabout way, uh, to one of my favorite discoveries, kind of thinking, and perhaps I'll have to do this in another podcast, because I've been such a flipping motor mouth, I won't shut up and get on with it. But the Bayesian thinking, what I call the Bayesian kind of thinking, I have discovered the value, the power, as it were, of Bayes' theorem, because it has helped me learn how to ask the better question. It has helped me learn how to look at the more realistic, probable perspective. And, and that might be for another podcast. We're only, we're only about 20 minutes into this one, right?
0: Right. 20 minutes. Well, it's actually two hours.
1: Yes, but we still, we still have three hours to go, right?
0: Uno, this is not a Mormon stories podcast.
1: (laughs) Come on, John Belen. You got to hand it to him. I'm so grateful he did that thirteen blessed glorious hours with Robert Rittner. But then again, I realize I'm a nobody; he was everybody, so it was worth the thirteen hours. No, no,
0: no, no, yeah. no. You just wait a second, pal. Okay, because you've got to explain this. I have been trying diligently to get you on this show
1: for <laughs> over
0: a year, and you have been putting me off and putting me off. Finally, had to get Kish Kumin involved as a mediator of sorts. <laughs> I'm
1: gonna I'm gonna get even with him on Sunstone when we do the Sunstone battle. <laughs> I want to hear about that too, but not yet. I don't want to hear about it yet. But I want
0: I want you to explain to the audience why it is that you were so reluctant to come on the show for an interview.
1: I mean who am I? I'm a punk. I'm a nobody. I don't have a PhD. I'm not very well published. Yeah. I published a couple of articles in the farms review books. I did a good one with Russell McGregor. Actually, we, we've got a long story there, but um, so, I mean, you have, you have had some seriously awesome. I mean, Brent Metcalf, Brian, Howlett, all these fabulous people um, have you had Dan Vogel yet I haven't had Britt Metcalf was that a Mormon story instead of you It have been David vokavoy oh yeah 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 I mean you know yeah I was an ardent apologist but um tell us about Russell McGregor I, I don't think my effect as an apologist was all that
0: I, I mean you know it what? was huge you think oh, I know uh, okay so listen tell us about Russell McGregor <laughs> he is. Russell McGregor posts under Kiwi Fifty Seven. He is the Thunder from Down Under. Some people call him the Blunder from Down Under. But <laughs> I think that's harsh. I don't think that's oh. fair. Do you? Well, uh but he, no, he's like um the uh, self-appointed pit bull for Daniel. Peterson. Yeah,
1: yeah. I'm,
0: he's like the head yeah. of the Flying Monkey Brigade for Daniel Peterson. <laughs>
1: No, that'd be, oh, okay, yeah.
0: Well, he and Louis Lew, Midgley fight. Yeah, his, I
1: was going to say, I, I think there's one that outdoes him, but uh, Russell McGregor, uh, we had, we had a he was on the uh, fair email list also. And uh, he was, you have to understand McGregor, yeah, he's a little bit, he's a little bit, too militaristic. That's the wrong approach. That's the wrong word. Um, he's, you know what apologists today need, and it's going to insult them. And I apologize in advance for you being so short-sighted that you are insulted. But what they need is the Mister Rogers approach. I like you just the way you are. Have you ever noticed how apologists get so personal just because you don't agree with their conclusion or you say well okay yeah you're reading that ancient uh targum of jonathan different than i am you know uh okay so i don't technically agree with you on this particular doctrine Do you have to make it so bloody personal and attack me and all of a sudden start digging up dirt on me and travel halfway around the world to try to get between me and my spouse or whatever it is you do? You know, why does that offend you that someone doesn't think exactly like you? I think that's the approach that Russell McGregor has ended up taking He wasn't always like that. Him and I were really good friends. I would like to think I'm friends with every Mormon friend that I've ever had. Unfortunately, because of the nature of the, and I'm going to say this deliberately, understand this, you guys. This is how you are coming across. I'm not the only one coming to this conclusion, but you're acting very cultish. And if that offends you, then knock it off. Because there's no reason to make anyone an enemy, and yet they do. So, Russell McGregor, he was actually writing uh, an article for a Farms Review of Books, and he shared it with the list for uh, to to have us help him critique it. basically chintzy peer review, right? That's the way the interpreter does stuff. You know, their peer reviews, Daniel Peterson writes something spectacular. Then he tosses it off over here to John Gee and he says, what do you think, man? Do you like my conclusion? Do you like how I make fun of this guy? And Guy reads it and laughs and cackles and says, yeah, that's a great article. And they go ahead and publish it. And they think that's peer review. Now I'm speaking from authority here because that's how they did mine. I know what their peer review is. So maybe that might be for another podcast too. Who knows? But um, their view of peer review is not academic peer review. I'll put it that way. It's not anonymous and it's not someone on a neutral turf or a neutral term. And it never goes to opponents first. Oh no, they like to surprise the opponents. Well, welcome to the world of apologetics, not scholarship. So Russ McGregor and I, We're on this email list. This is after Kevin Graham and Van Hill have so unceremonially and totally ridiculously been kicked off the list. Uh, And there's politics getting involved and all that for whatever reason I, I was discussing, I was bringing up, uh, I do believe D Michael Quinn in his work. And of course the, the, uh, the, uh, the sentiment was, Oh, he was such a fine scholar. He was so nice. And then he went astray. I look, I wanted to be a good apologist, right? So I had to study all that stuff. I went through D. Michael Quinn's book. The early magic book, uh, Early Mormonism Magic Worldview. And I just flat out asked, I said, "Okay, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Forget the sentimental and mush. Can we refute? this. Now, this was before the farms wrote their refutation of him. They, they actually did respond to it. More, more ad hominem than anything, but they at least gave it a shot. They did the same thing with Brent Metcalf, right? Uh, crap, they did the same thing with Walter Martin, too, as far as that goes, but now they're going to do the same thing with me. Woohoo! All right, come and attack to the to backyard professor. I have no credentials. This should be an easy knockover except I do talk back. So be careful. I'm no longer restrained by what I can conclude. So watch it anyway. Uh, so I asked point blank the email list. I said, guys, let's refute him then. And McGregor, uh, did something or Russ, Russ and I were actually getting along pretty good. And I can't remember all the details, but somehow it came out that D. Michael Quinn was phony because he relied on the ridiculously stupid Mark Hoffman forgeries. Neener, neener, neener. Way to go, D. Michael Quinn, you idiot. Now, did they see
0: any irony in the fact that D. Michael Quinn is relying on the accuracy of the Hoffman forgeries that the church bought because they thought that they were authentic in the first place?
1: You just hit the grand slam homer that I was leading up to. Because way to go. See, you're prophetic. Yeah, baby. I point blank, if I remember correctly, objected. And I said, uh, You're just simply attacking D. Michael Quinn, and the brethren were deceived by Mark Hoffman just as surely as D. Michael Quinn was you know, and the be. list be
0: and the list second. Can... is this now when the general authority is on the list yes I think so so you said it so a general authority could read it or let me put yeah. it this way you said it and a general authority could read it
1: yeah I think so uh okay. and, and I, I know I My timeline might be off, but I do believe I was upset because they were attacking uh, D. Michael Quinn, trying to make him look like uh, a complete fool and a hypocrite. When, in fact, the Brethren bought the forgeries with the intention of hiding the forgeries. And that is, I mean, you know, the famous picture yeah so you Hoff, Hoffman's like there in the in the, what is it the new era or the Anson or something like that and President Kimball has a magnifying
0: glass it's the, page of the paper, paper, I think it's a huh? paper it's the front page of the newspaper oh,
1: oh it could have been yeah the, yeah and and you're going wait uh Spence Kimball prophet Seer stones, revelation what's he doing with the magnifying glass? really seriously are you kidding me? And then Gordon B. Hinckley. You can see it's a photo op, right? <laughs> oh.
0: And that was the Anton Manuscript.
1: Oh, it was too, the Anton Manuscript. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. And when the salamander letter came out, what did you think of the farm's response to that? That was a little interesting, wasn't it? You kind of go, uh, how? Co- wait, hold it. Hey, when it first came out, I was still married to my first wife. And I was doing a little bit uh blurb on the back of the little programs that they pass out for sacred meeting doing the outline of the program and then they have a cute little spiritual thought or whatever well the back page was always blank so i asked to be given that back page to share evidences for the book of mormon and stuff like that with right so when the salamander letter came out i and i've got this somewhere in my library i've kept all those somewhere can't find them save my life right now i wrote Uh, it's time for Mormons to uh, quit watching so much television and uh, quit being so dumbed down and believing everything you say because there is no way that Moroni was a salamander. And one of the members of the ward really got after me. He came at me tooth and claw and he said, how dare you argue against the brethren they have bought this something to the effect that they believe it or no, 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 no. It was before the general authorities had purchased it. They were saying farms was defending it. And who are you to, uh, not have uh, you? You don't have the clout the farms you So I went and bought all the farm stuff, which I always did anyway. And sure enough, they're defending the salamander, letter,
0: man. Well, it wasn't just farms; it was Elder Oaks who made a public address giving the <laughs> farms arguments about why it was okay that Moroni was described as an amphibian. As
1: yeah, and and you can ignore those. Critics who have lost the Holy Spirit of guidance because they're always wrong. And it just happened to be the bloody flipping apostates, the tanners, who immediately said, forgery, forgery, completely fake. But that was the conclusion I came to. Even after reading the farm stuff, I said, you know, that was interesting. That was fun. That was kind of cool to get kind of a a broader ancient context. But this simply can't be right. Well, later on it came out that it was a forgery the thing that bothered me is when that first mormon murders by nafe and can't remember who else wrote that book described how badly the church was deceived by mark hoffman yeah that was a question in my mind for a long time i brought it out with russ mcgregor on the email list i said i had
0: interrupted you and you had said you made yeah, this, uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I said, email I said, Holy
1: cow. Yeah. Yeah. The email list. They said, Hey, Hey, we are not here to ridicule the brethren. And I said, see, that's the thing. I'm not ridiculing the brethren. I am stating a direct historic fact. You guys look at the information. We bought the forgeries. Did we not? And they said, yes. And I said, and we never let them out. Farms has been analyzing them and all, but they bought all those forgeries of a direct forger and a murderer with the intent of hiding them is, is that spiritual or whatever. Russ McGregor came out and he said, Carrie, Carrie, what do you want? And I simply typed two words, the truth. And from that time on, I quit posting. Because I realized, you know what? Fair is no longer about the truth. It's an image. They can't even admit the obvious historic fact that absolutely every living one of us on that email list knew is that they bought the forgeries, man. Come on, they bought the Hoffman forgeries. You can't lie about that. You can't whitewash that. I mean, come on! And from that point on, uh, I begin to get some tension
0: with Fair Harry. We've got forty-five minutes left in this three hours, and here's- well
1: shall we cut it short and thrill everybody?
0: Here's how I want to structure this. No, we're not cutting it short. Oh,
1: okay. In the,
0: we've got fifteen minutes, and in that fifteen minutes, I would like you to tell what I think is a very important story related to you and John Twetness.
1: Oh, oh, yeah, yeah.
0: We'll have the remainder of the time for you to talk about how it is that you ended up stopping being an apologist for the LDS church.
1: Because Satan appeared to me as an angel of light? Oh, no, that didn't happen. That won't work. Okay. Um, John Twetness. John Twetness. What a man, what a man. I was very sad when he died. Uh, did you ever wonder why he just silently disappeared from farms? I personally think it was because of some politics involved, and I think I know what caused that politics. And again, I'm happy to uh, be told otherwise, but believe me, if I'm told by a Mormon apologist, I'm going to take it with a grain of salt, because I know how Mormon apologists, uh, let's say, present historic information. So here's my side of the story. I was in his office. And we were, uh, John is the one that told me uh, that if I can, I need to get jassenius's Hebrew grammar. And I didn't even know Jesenius existed. I didn't even know what that was. So he showed me uh, a copy, his copy of Jesenius' Hebrew grammar. And I, you know. It's Jesenius. If you know anything about Hebrew grammars and all that, Jesenius is the Cadillac of grammars. Yeah, it's old. It's probably honestly dated. But wow, talk about really all-inclusive, excellent materials. So because of John, I did end up getting Jesenius' Hebrew grammar. And I got several other Hebrew lexicons, grammar books, uh, dictionaries, and all that. And we had fun browsing back and forth through stuff. Uh John was doing some early Christian materials, uh, and this was published later on. Uh, let's see if I can see it. I believe it was in one of the ancient temples volumes where he talked about the. Uh, oh, sorry, my chair's backing out on me where he talked about the anciently, the priestly clothing and the hand clasp. Uh, at the veil of the temple, et cetera, you know, they find these little odd parallels and they make it look like it's all inclusive, total early Mormonism before Joseph Smith existed back in Jesus's day. Right. So he's proving Masonry true. He's proving without realizing he is. Yeah. Because he didn't study the Masonry stuff. So he's working on that. And he's showing me, he had several uh, photos. I mean, look, his research was something else. He could really, he could find the different uh, photos and charts and graphs and maps of the world. He was good. He was really good. Uh, And so he was all excited about showing me all that stuff. And I'm, I'm absorbing all of this Matt Roper every now and then would bounce in and out. And, you know, he'd bring us a hamburger and fries or we'd all go out and have lunch. And it was a lot of fun. So he's telling me about this, uh, This idea that uh, baptism for the dead in early Christian times, that a new scholar has just come out with an article on that very subject. He analyzed the Greek. He analyzed the early Christian contextual materials. He analyzed the epigraphic and the archaeological ideas. And it's it's fabulous for Joseph Smith. You know, I'm going to do an article on that. He did. I'm not sure if that ever got published, though. I got the pre published copy of it, and I went and got that scholar's article, and I went and found two other scholarly articles on First Corinthians fifteen twenty nine also, and I can't remember how we were uh, talking. About, oh, uh, we were talking about King Solomon's temple. I do believe. And Bill Hamblin was another good friend of mine. He was awesome. His library was mouthwatering too, man. I really liked Bill. Bill actually invited me to stay with him in Jerusalem for six weeks, uh, just a few years before he retired. And I really wish I could have taken him up on that. God. Got it. I'm afraid I missed a golden opportunity, but yeah, we were close. He really liked studying the Zohar with me. I'm getting off track, aren't I? Okay, you back to It's
0: okay. You're with John Twitness in his office. I, I'm so with John, John Twitness in his
1: hall. office, and, and we're talking, talking
0: about, about Solomon's stick, Temple, the Stick of Ephraim. No,
1: not yet. We're talking about the Solomon <laughs> okay. Temple.
0: Well, you've got about 10 minutes to get to the Stick of
1: Ephraim. Yeah, I'm there. We're talking about the Solomon Temple. And I described how baptism for the dead couldn't possibly have happened then. Uh, And uh, in the molten sea. Right. It, It still wouldn't work because the context was off. And he goes, oh, speaking of context, I got one for you. I go, all right. Yeah, sure, John. He goes, did you know Ezekiel 37, the stick of Joseph is not a prophecy of the Book of Mormon? Cave my head in. I go, John. Uh, look, <laughs> we're uh, okay. What is it? And he said, "No, it that entire contest is Mormonized." Ezekiel thirty-seven is not about the Book of Mormon, carry And I go, "Oh, come on!" I said, "John, it's in the Doctrine and Covenants." He said, "I know, but the Hebrew doesn't." give that context. He said, we have misinterpreted the context deliberately, just like we have done so with Isaiah 29, the learned man reading the sealed book. And I said, now, wait a minute, John, Joseph Smith himself, or at least Martin Harris, one of them, uh, mentioned that as a fulfillment of prophecy. That's that's their understanding you're now you're starting to uh, uh, disagree with Joseph Smith you know the prophet you know the prophet John halt, calm down and he goes, Carrie, I'm telling you there is not one single Old Testament prophecy of anything to do with Mormonism, Joseph Smith or the Book of Mormon and Ezekiel 37 is the single worst, Jesus that we have ever performed something to that effect and I go they've, they've said it in general he said, yeah I know the general authorities have talked about it. I'm well aware of Marky e. Peterson saying it's a direct prophecy and proof and all that he said those ancient Jews didn't have any idea about Joseph Smith the Book of Mormon the angel Moroni none of that they had no idea there was someone here in America he said that's all Mormonized well when he went To publish that they squelched it uh he told me a general authority didn't say which one told him no the church is not ready to see this yet he took him through in detail the hebrew and the context and the general authority agreed with him and his context but he said we're not ready for this yet so you can't publish it and from that point on uh Twetness never got anything else that his published that I remember. Uh, farms basically shut him out. Uh, apparently, uh, they. My interpretation, he retired shortly thereafter. And then he disappeared to Arkansas. He just left. He never kept in touch with anybody that I'm aware of. He never kept in touch with me. He didn't do anything. Of that. He just disappeared, which was a sad thing. So, but. Yeah, uh, a terrific Hebrew scholar who was trying to be honest with the context, like I had been as an apologist, and he came out with an interpretation and he had an evidentiary based good Bayesian analysis. And they wouldn't let him publish it. I have no idea where his research went, I have no idea where his notes went, but he said he had a really solid case and it kind of shocked me at the time. But that's kind of what we're facing. Uh, Didn't Brian Hagel come out the same way uh, with this uh, book of Abraham? I mean, look at Dan Vogel. Look at Brent Metcalf for Pete's sake. There he was a security guard for the church. Went on a mission and all that jazz right in the middle of the Hoffman stuff. And then look how they treated him because he came to different conclusions. You know, and now look at me. I'm probably going to get. Take it in the teeth, too. Although, although I haven't, you know, I've been kind of quiet, like you say, I avoided you like crazy. I apologize for the inconvenience with which my obfuscation might have caused. However, it's not necessary to end up making enemies of anyone who simply comes to a different conclusion than you. If you're basing a friendship on which religious belief you accept and which religion you are, you're on the wrong foot. That's not a true friendship. I don't think that's the friendship the Lord talks about. Let me
0: ask you this, because i have sure. trying to pay attention and you've talked about some cognitive dissonance, I think, that was created in your head through the Mark Hoffman affair and the church buying up forgeries to hide them. Yeah. And that probably this discussion with John Twetness, where he's telling you that you know the stick of Joseph thing, is yeah, not, or the stick of Ephraim, stick of Joseph, right, uh, is not a prediction of the Book of Mormon, and that's kind of problematic because it's in the Doctrine and Covenants, and I think it's section twenty-seven where the Lord in a revelation makes that connection and calls the Book of Mormon the stick of Joseph. So that was
1: one. That was one of Nibley's main evidences in his stick of Joseph article.
0: Yeah. So these things are piling up. What is it that triggers you and how is it that you end up leaving apologetics in the dust and frankly, ultimately Mormonism?
1: In your- oh, again, back to the fair email list. Um, I became good friends with Steve Smoot. I asked, he was nice enough on one of the uh, fair conferences that I went down when I was making videos of everybody and having a ball that way. Uh, I did Blake Osler and and I did Dan Peterson. I did David Bockevoy. I did Brian Howe, Gledon. I mean, those were the fun old days of video. uh,
0: This this is one of the funniest things that you, I think, are maybe most known for, at least in certain circles, is that you would travel from Idaho, I believe, down to Utah for the fair Mormon fair conferences. It goes through different changes of name as you know right and uh and then that now they're having them in utah and you're getting big names coming showing up you got dan peterson you have all these people and you would take your uh your your phone or your camera whatever it was you used to video and you would (laughs) grab these guys and you would do impromptu interviews with them when they're not presenting and the one i remember i don't remember actually what was said i think it was um Oh, who's the philosopher guy, the philosopher king? Blake Osler. Thank you. And he was wearing like a black button-down shirt or something. So it was kind of like, but you're sitting there interviewing him, and he's up against this backdrop. And I've never seen a, a person look quite so uncomfortable, I think.
1: I had him in the corner. It was actually a corner. Yeah, I cornered. He was one of them that I went up to, and I said, Blake Osler, I'm going to interview you for my videos. Start talking. And I just turned the camera on.
0: <laughs> then you take those and you put them up on your website and everybody yeah. enjoy them. they were wonderful and then you're yeah. driving down the road and you'd be talking to the camera about going to the conference and yeah. then driving back from the conference and talking to the camera about all the great things you'd learned and what a wonderful time you had this fun was, times this was what made you famous i think
1: oh okay because i was such a dork yeah that makes sense
0: well <laughs> there's def- there definitely a fanboy atmosphere to it
1: yeah and and yeah because, part. Uh, don't take yourself seriously. Take the subject seriously, but you got to have a little fun. You got. We're all human. Uh, we're not going to get out of that. Yeah, we love to present this image of suave, debonair, ultimately intellectual. I am above the riffraff. Yeah, well, you shut great, up Shut up and talk to me in a video then. because That was, that was a great John Gee impression you just oh, did. Yeah. Ouch. You're probably right, though. Yeah. He could use a little humor, couldn't he? I It'd be tough to be laughing if it, if I was him nowadays. But...
0: Let me tell you this about Steve Smoot, because you're going to go into this story.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stevie.
0: I love Stevie. Steven Smoot, back when he was just in, you know, small later lederhosen. Third grade. Yes. He was much younger. It was before his mission. And he was over on that, the mad board. Yeah. And he was very into apologetics, even as a teenager. And that's my fault. You are responsible.
1: You're partly. Partly. Yeah. Even Smoot. Yeah. You know what mistake I made with him? Okay. What? I videoed him just like I did Blake Osler. Yeah. It was at a fair conference. Okay. No joke, and the rest is history. So I didn't, I didn't know him from Adam. I just simply I heard him talking. I go, hey, you come here, smile at this camera, and talk to me. What's your name? I'm the Backyard Professor. I'm making videos. Let's put you up. You're smart. No joke, and he did. And He is. He's very, very smart person. Oh, the kid's brilliant. And before he went on, sorry,
0: that's okay. I'm just telling my little story here. Sure, absolutely. Publicly, and uh, it's kind of funny is that Stevens, who has really become. Uh, Definitely an apologist. I think he passions himself after um, uh, Daniel Peterson. And he's extremely well, he's condescending. He's snarky and he's not a lot of fun, if you know what I mean. Okay, that's
1: his online persona. Right.
0: But this is before he's he's become crusty. And it's before his mission, and he's lamenting the fact that uh, there is a Farms book that had been put out called Warfare and the Book of Mormon that came out in the 1980s. Oh, yeah, yeah. Might have been the 1990s, probably 1990s. Wasn't that one of
1: Bill Hamblin's productions?
0: Oh, yeah, I think so. I think yeah. he was the editor. So. And, of course, they have yeah. the big conference. They put Him all- and
1: Stephen yeah. Ricks. Yep. Yeah.
0: And it's a big hardback book, and it's out of print. And he's lamenting the fact that I happen to have one because I bought it when it came out, right? And so yeah. I go back and I look at it. There's some notes in there, but, you know, I don't really need this anymore. It's not like I've been doing what you do, going back and cross-referencing or rereading. And I thought, yeah. Um, and so what I did was I, I messaged him, asked for his mailing address, and I just went down to the post office and mailed it off to him as a gift.
1: Oh, what a guy. Yeah.
0: So he got it. He was very happy. And uh, it was wonderful. We were, we were like this and now we're kind of on opposite ends of the the ring.
1: And... The ring, but that's no reason not to be friends. You know, that's the one thing that just absolutely infuriates me now um, because I was, I was divisive as an apologist. I made enemies of people who didn't think like me when I really didn't even need to. That was just silly. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I'm sorry it takes that own. I'm sorry it takes that turn for us can I tell you my story about smell
0: your story about okay.
1: okay yeah um that was a great story that's cool of you man you're awesome uh we're on the email list and we're talking we're talking strategizing uh, trying to figure things out uh, congratulating each other on the new article on the website whatever it was we were doing. And at any given time, really, the email list by this time had grown enormously, and it was huge, and there were a lot of people, and there were a lot of various different conversations. We each had our own little click, so to speak, of specialized subjects, you know, simply. For instance, I really never did get very good at church history. Smoot was talking, and I just can't remember. Hold on. Did I write this down? What were we talking about?
0: Well, you're talking about atheists. Oh, yes,
1: yes. We were talking about atheist arguments because of Mark Hoffman. And Mark Hoffman, of course, he admitted he was an atheist. Wow. The brethren are not deceived by atheists. Well, Smoot came out and said, look, it's not a big deal because all of the atheist arguments have already been refuted. I go, really? Wow. What? Which... which uh, which book did you get that from? How do you know they've all he goes, Carrie, it's common knowledge that the atheists don't have very good arguments and that and that they've all been refuted. I go, it's I it we are uh, it's common knowledge with who? I said, Well, who have you read? He goes, well, you know, just atheists, they can't be right. And Pretty much a lot of the guys agreed. So I asked the email list, something to this effect. I I asked, I go, all right, uh, who here has read any atheist books? Because I haven't. I said, actually, this could be a weakness in our apologetics, because I don't know anything about the atheists, but I had no idea they were all refuted. Who's been doing the refuting? What atheist books have you guys read? Well, it turns out that none of us knew much about atheism, but there we were pronouncing against them. And so like an idiot, because I want to look, if I'm going to be an apologist, I got to be a good one. Well, all right. That means I have to be informed. Well, all right. Then that means I have to do a lot of reading on a lot of different sides so that I can really, you know, Sun Tzu, the art of war, know your enemy. Well, then you better know your enemy's arguments before you start uh, fighting, because if you bring a sword to a gunfight, you might find yourself outnumbered, you know none of them have read an atheist and here i was being hypocritical i'm thinking well uh quite frankly i haven't either so in the back of my head i said all right uh it's time i'm gonna uh i guess i better find an atheist book and and at least read one you know so a month or so goes by i'm in a barnes and noble looking for something entirely different i can't remember maybe it was one of the new farms review books or whatever, although I bought from them directly, more or less. It was fun to go down there and buy them in person. Oh, and the BYU bookstore always had the good ancient archaeological Mesoamerican stuff and all that. John Sorensen's newest materials on that. I'm looking at at the philosophy section in Barnes and Noble here, and I see the atheist section. I go, oh, well, there are not a whole lot of books. So I pick up the first book, atheist book, and it was this one. Godless by Dan Barker. It is how an evangelical preacher, now farms cut its teeth on those poor evangelicals, right? Became one of America's leading atheists. I said, oh, all right, Dan Barker forward by Richard Dawkins. Well, I had been studying evolution, of course, and that was another cantankerous issue is uh, the more I read evolution, the more I realized the church's stand against evolution just simply didn't make sense. Uh, And the scholarship against evolution was positively horrible. Uh, so there was that. So I saw the foreword by Richard Dawkins, and I'd read a few of his books, and I realized, well, he's a pretty good evolutionist at least. So I got this book. I said, okay, my first atheist book. Let's see what you know. I I should be able to by the weekend have a review of this book and and have him wiped out. Uh, I had Nibley's book, Evolution, a Convenient Fiction or whatever. No, it was, wasn't his book. It was his paper, which is the stupidest, most cherry-picked, idiotic uh, argument against evolution I have ever read. I mean, Hugh Nibley, you, you didn't fumble and drop the football. You brought a baseball back to the game. You didn't, he had no idea what he was doing, unfortunately. I read this book cover to cover. Could not put it down fantastic book his journey is mine and that's what shocked me the most when i read about how he began to lose his faith and how his faith totally slid into the deep dark evil abyss of atheism but he really made it sound sensible so I asked everybody else, hey, uh, I just read Dan Barker's book, Godless, and it blew me out of the water. I've never read a more powerful book. I had no idea. Atheist literature was this strong. What do you mean it's been refuted? Who has refuted this guy? What books are you guys reading? Or are you just doing what the Mormons are doing and simply tossing it off without reading it?
0: Can you take three minutes, Carrie, and tell us what was so powerful about this book to you?
1: I can take three hours. Oh.
0: <laughs> this will yes. be more of a challenge
1: yes oh boy this is a challenge okay don't start the clock for 20 minutes and i'll do it the part about the philosophical arguments for god <laughs> using occam's razor anselm's biblical proof or, or uh, philosophical proof and uh thomas aquinas and the Kalam argument about the God first cause uh, those were simply magnificent now whether they agree or not Mormonism is simply a a warped version of Christianity yeah they say they're restored and all that I understand that It's, it's all good it's all good but the Uh, The assumption, the basis, the foundation, the background, the thinking, the concept, the philosophy, the historical, the doctrinal aspects that Mormonism restored are all based on Christianity. And Dan Barker completely took the rug out from under my feet. And he'll do so for Daniel C. Peterson. I challenge Lou Midgley to actually do a real analysis without worrying about calling him names like he does against a gentleman named Gemley. I think Lou Midgley is terrified of the scientific atheist because he knows Mormonism can't hold up. That's why he mocks, spits, and ad hominems instead of discussing and calmly reasoning through a Bayesian analysis of where the argument's wrong and where the strength and weaknesses are. Dan Barker clobbered all of that for me now here's the thing i read this book several years ago i just reread it for this interview i just read it a couple days ago and i'm not as impressed now as i was earlier you want to know why because once i read this the floodgates opened up and i said wow what else is there. And of course, you have the the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the popularizer atheists, Hitchens, Dawkins, Harris, and I I like Dick Stanger myself. But you know, they're the uh, they're the motor mouse. They're the uh, they're the big shots. They're the TV personalities and all that. But they're not the powerful atheists. They're not. Yeah, you can pick on Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins is not atheism. Richard Dawkins is an atheist atheist if you don't know the difference you're never going to refute mormonism or uh, atheism my favorite philosopher is michael martin my favorite atheist is michael martin this one atheism a philosophical justification come on apologist, show me what you're made of go ahead and show me show me because he uses Bayes theorem and Mormonism is really starting to get on to the, uh, the apologetics is have discovered Bayes now. So they're starting to use it to prove the book of Mormon true, then prove this guy false. That's my challenge to Mormonism. Dr. Moore is rich enough to challenge you and give you a $10,000 options that you continually refuse to actually take. If I was that rich, I'd do that, but I'm not, but there's your book. Go ahead take him on. Carrie, yeah. I remember
0: that over the last decade, at least, in fair Mormon conferences, where traditionally Daniel C. Peterson came to become the final speaker at yeah. the conferences, and I would listen to him. I never actually attended, but I listened to the, the audio or watched the video. Sure. There was more than once where he referred to this project that he was working on, which was a book that was going to refute the atheist position
1: yeah yeah and he picked on he picked on christopher hitchens yeah i've never seen that book actually
0: come out has it come out did
1: he finish this book no dan peterson never finishes books he's too busy doing other stuff um no uh and, and he really didn't do all that good of a job against Hitchens either, but he, he kind of thinks like a, an apologist, you know, if you refute Richard Dawkins, and quite frankly, Richard Dawkins is more polemical, but he does talk straighter. I mean, you know, give me a straight up wolf with bearing fangs instead of a... a Wolf that wants to act like a sheep is what the apologists say. Well, all right, you'll want a real atheist. There you go, Richard Dawkins, but his philosophical materials really aren't as strong as say, Michael Martin's. I agree with that, but you're not refuting atheism. If you kick Hitchens in the shin and say, neener, 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 you yelled ouch. You know, that doesn't impress anybody get to the real atheists, man, because the Mormons have lost the war. And I know that'll probably shock you. You'll say, oh, yeah, sure. If you don't know diddly spit. That's true. But that's irrelevant to my statement. You Mormons have lost the war. It's over. It's done. The Book of Abraham Uh, The idea of your doctrines of a premortal existence and a God and all that jazz. You haven't refuted the atheist yet. Now, Neil A. Maxwell told them no more free dunks. Then what are you doing? Letting the atheist refute your very deity and you not responding validly. Now there is a good attempt before you yell at me and say, I'm outdated. Hiram Lewis There is a God. This guy's out of BYU, Idaho. I liked this book. I like this kid. He's good. He's he's got the loveliest baby face. He's really something else. He looks like he's 15 here. Anyway, that's ad hominem. I'm not saying that for his argument. I like the guy, but uh, his error is he takes on Richard Dawkins, imagining that he's refuted atheism. He hasn't. He hasn't. The other atheist I've got to get to before we quit is, uh, well, I mean, John Loftus. Outsider Test of Faith. John Loftus, take the test. Look it up. Read it. It'll scare the snot out of you. Uh, this guy right here. Oh, this guy, too. Oh, well, this guy, too. Oh, my gosh. James A. Lindy, the mathematician. But this one, Atheism and the Case Against Christ by Matthew McCormick. He's got a website called Proving the Negative. Go ahead. Jump on it. Let me know what you think. See if you can refute him. This book will clobber you. It's amazing. Now, here's the upside of all of this. I wanted to be a good apologist. I had to read as many atheists. I've got like 15 books here stacked. I've got another 30 or 40 over there in my bookcase. Bertrand Russell, and all those guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um i'm no longer an atheist here's the catch uh i I studied this stuff for five or six years uh they really make their case against the uh the christian interpretations i'll put it that way the christian interpretations the bible the 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 western version Is problematic, but that doesn't mean there isn't a God. I think the atheists themselves have gotten dogmatic, (laughs) which is really ironic, right? So, where does that leave me? (laughs) You know, you go, Oh my gosh, what a nightmare. I feel sorry for you, backyard professor. Oh, no, no, no. No, this is a fantastic experience. Going through, trying to use evidence to see where I should be, to see what I am justified in believing and not believing, et cetera. This is fantastic. That's the essence of life. That's what it's for, right? Time wasted. That's why it's made. So I would have to say, really truly, I'm on an agnostic end, but I'm not convinced that there's not a God. I just don't know. The cool thing is, I no longer think it's wicked or weak or willy-nilly if you say, Well, I don't know. I don't know. It's okay, it's not a crisis. I'm still learning. I'm still studying. I'm having fun. I'm making friends with a lot of different people scientists and philosophers and religious people and Bible believers and all that jazz. I just wish the Mormon apologists would jump online because I don't view them as an enemy any more than I do anybody else.
0: Well, Carrie, here's what I understand you to be saying what I understand you to be saying is that nobody had read any of these atheist books. Right. Here you've got Stephen Smoot saying they've already been refuted. Then it turns out nobody's read them. You take it upon yourself. You're going to read them in order to refute the position. And ultimately, the result was that the atheist position persuaded you down the atheist path. Yeah. You found yeah. their arguments to be uncontrovertible.
1: Well, from the Christian viewpoint, yeah. But I still had the Mormon idea how these guys didn't directly deal with the Mormon idea. And it was at a Sunstone conference that I ran into Thomas Riscus's book, Deconstructing Mormonism. Uh, and, and that book is horribly written. And I told Tom Riscus that online. I said, dude, you got to rewrite this stupid book. You really made it way too complicated. But one terrific book, I can't refute it. I wrote a book review on Amazon Uh, on his book and it just blew everybody away i basically said i i don't have the as an apologist i don't have the capability of uh I, i can't refute this he he's he's got his finger on the pulse of how mormonism brainwashes its people and i know that's offensive there's no other word to describe it you guys uh Several Mormon apologists, I'll state it right now, I happen to know for a fact, several Mormon apologists know the gig is up, but they continue trying to defend it and and uh, make fun of anybody who disagrees with them. And continue to defend the doctrine and the history and the scripture and all simply because they're paid apologists. And I know that that offends them. That's just tough luck. If you work at BYU, you're a paid Mormon apologist. We already know that. We know the church is not going to let you follow the evidence to any other conclusion other than your temple testimony questions. So
0: that's how that works. What are your relationships like now with your former friends who are still
1: apologists for the church? I don't know if there is much of one. And that could be part my fault. I mean, you know, when you, when you uh, realize, wow, this, this doesn't work. Uh, when you realize intellectually, you know, I studied those biblical scholars, and man, they showed me how powerful their materials are compared to the rinky-dink, stupid, lame LDS apologetics from BYU. Uh, except except for S. Kent Brown. He's pretty good. That boy is good. Uh, but anyway, um, so I don't know if I tried to keep up with them either, because, yeah, there's a... There's an element of embarrassment. There's an element of shame. There's the element of anger. Of course, you go through all the psychological steps. Uh, and, I, and I think I am beyond that. Partly part of the reason this is a blessing that I kept putting you off because now I'm past that anger stage. I don't have to sit here and erupt and rant and rave and scream and yell and scream poor me and how much I hate Mormons and I'm sick of being deceived. That's the problem with the Reddit ex-Mormon site. All those poor hundreds of thousands of Mormon youth, they're real screaming right now, but they need to get over it. We've got nine minutes. But I got nine minutes left. I would ah, like you to
0: explain.
1: Bear my testimony. I would like to testify that this podcast is true. Oh, sorry.
0: That'll do. That'll do. No, seriously, though. Why was it that you were so angry?
1: Because I was deceived. I was told that this is the truth. And this is the only truth. And then I spent decades trying to defend that truth see that's an experience in life though so you can't look back at that and lament for the next 20 years that your first 20 years was a complete waste of time because now you're 40 years down the road and you're none the wiser or better or more accomplished so yeah okay you got deceived well get over it get undeceived what i did to help my part of my therapy i'll put it this way Part of my therapy, I suspect, is that I kept studying. You know, I, I didn't. Uh, oh, cry any for the first time in my life. I, I, have you read David Bacavoy's blog? Oh, what a guy, what a guy, right? He is also another one who has said, uh, you know, this just doesn't work for me. Uh, but he has kept going. He has kept learning. He has kept developing and experiencing. And now look how happy he is. Yeah freedom yeah his newest blog entry because interpreter so lamely and unprofessionally posted one of his nine-year-old articles as if they were innocent you know the unprofessionalism of some of that sick at non-interpreter crap just blows your mind right but Daniel you know
0: Peterson, he's been putting the sick and sick at none since 1997
1: <laughs> yeah but you're misspelling it you're spelling it s-i-c-k <laughs> <laughs> so uh what my, my advice, my my thinking, I have, yeah, and I've read uh, 35, 40, 50 atheist books. Is that a complete waste of time? Well, for some non-thinkers, yes, of course, not from my point of view. Look, I spent 20 years, and I kept with all you guys. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. It takes up shelf space. I've got all the Farms Review books over there. I've got all my nibbly collection. I've got Blake Osler stuff right there. Yeah, I've got several of the farm books. I've got the studies in scripture. I've got, uh, you know, uh, the Joseph Smith papers, the book Dan Vogel and Brent Metcalf or some Prath writing. I've kept all my Mormon stuff. Well, most of it as a basis to refer back to if I ever need to. And I've added on, here's my science section over here. And I study astronomy science. The key is. What caused me to be angry is because of that idea. The church essays. I mean, is that a concession or what?
0: For deck, or five minutes with your feelings about the oh, church essays. Oh,
1: okay. The, the, those essays destroyed my testimony. They absolutely eliminate. They knew, look, that's a concession. That everything the critics have been saying is actually how it happened, and it's the church that's been lying, and they have been excommunicating people who have been telling the truth. Now, you know, I'm not trying to be crude, but W T F question mark? Uh, look, you can't white you can't lie in order to get the truth out. If you have to lie about the truth, where is it in you? It's not. That's the bottom line. Those essays, by saying, well, the former prophets that taught Adam God or that kept the priesthood from the blacks or or gave us this this translation of the papri, whatever, they, those back then, they were just giving us their opinion. That wasn't really a revelation. Do you have any idea how that destroys any anchor of truth for a revealed religion? You know what that means? That means today's revelation from Jesus Christ and God Almighty in the upper rooms of the Salt Lake Temple to the church through the prophet can be tomorrow's mere opinion after all. But what do those essays ignore that's the real clincher? What about all the other tens of millions of testimonies of church members who accepted that mere personal opinion as a direct revelation because it was announced as a direct revelation from God Almighty himself, and everyone gained a testimony of it, and now the current leadership says, oh, well, it was just his opinion, because socially it's very inconvenient for us right now. Therefore, we no longer hold to that so-called putative doctrine. It's just someone's opinion. What about all the other? What does that tell you about the Holy Ghost? You just think about that. You think I'm bluffing. You think about that, and you'll start reading this atheist literature too, because that's one of the most powerful atheist arguments, and the church has made it for them in those ridiculous essays finally coming clean why'd you have to come clean in the first place if you have the truth you don't have to worry about that so here we go (laughs) the anchor's gone what do you do you're adrift you're a rudderless ship heck you don't even have a ship you know so now it's time to dog paddle for a while
0: according to elder and sister Renland, the church is now a dilapidated dinghy
1: Ooh, what a, what, what a metaphor.
0: Were you aware of that? No, I was I'll see not. See you later on the phone after the show. But now it's a pretty good metaphor. Me. I think we could go for probably a lot more than three hours. We may ask um, to have you back at some point in the future, depending upon how the audience loves or pans. This oh, they'll tell you uh, never to talk to me again, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> but thank <laughs> you so much, Carrie, for finally oh. coming out of obscurity and into the light of Radio Free Mormon.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for letting me just babble on and on. Hey, get it? Babble on. Yeah. All right. Got it. Got it. (laughs) (laughs) Now you got it. (laughs) Thank you once again.
0: And we'll talk more in the future. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been Carrie shirts, AKA the backyard professor on radio free Mormon. I almost said Mormonism live on radio (laughs) free Mormon. So thanks so much. This is radio free Mormon signing off the air.